the combing the stacks podcast your go-to podcast for six decades of music three albums at a time each decade we cover over 200 albums spanning all musical genres and tastes from the well-known acts to the cult favorites your tour guides on this journey are john josh and matt three amateur music podcasters who all share a love of music and a shared quest to hear the next great album and now we head into the stacks Evening of January 19th, 2023, and you are listening to the Combing the Stacks Music Podcast, Season 3, Episode 20, a regular episode this evening. Uh, before I do introductions here, let me as always remind you that you can check out all of our individual album reviews on YouTube by searching Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. We do have robust playlists for Season 1, which was the 60s, Season 2, which was the 70s, Season 3, which was the 80s, and they are all ad free and streamlined for you so you just go right into it without having to uh, search through ads if you are a, a completist you can find full shows like the one you're listening to right now uh on pretty much every major podcast platform uh, we do record with anchor which is a subsidy of spotify so Certainly, um, if you want to be uh, supportive of who we tape with, you could do that. But you could also check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, CastBox, Overcast. There's more than I can name right here, and I don't want to play favorites. But uh, basically, search for Combing the Stacks Music Podcast, and chances are you will find us. Okay, before we get into a rundown of tonight's albums, uh, you probably heard some bits of songs in the montage but first i'm going to shut up for a while and i'm going to check in with my co-hosts we'll go with matt to start off tonight matt how are you bud good john thanks for asking the original super ho (laughs) yeah i am a super ho i didn't know i didn't i didn't realize that till this week either and i started listening to that song i was like that's totally me yeah so and you're not even a lyrics guy. And you're I'm not. That's, that's even even more of a reason why that's totally me. So, I wonder yes. how much you you read those lyrics on that Boogie Down Productions album, Max. There were some jewels in there, shall we say? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I didn't and, read them. I I listened. I picked up things here and there. 
Look, so, he I found it. it. I find it a little easier lived, in, yeah. so, in, in like so, in, in rap rap songs to kind of pick up on lyrics more, much more than okay. rock. KRS One okay. raps a little slower too than some. Yeah, more he's modern people. he's he's a rapper for the people, for <laughs> yes. the, the common folk like myself. So, well, and speaking of jewels, Matt, would you want to introduce our friend Josh over there? Run the we jewels the... over there. This yeah. is uh, oh, yeah. J- Josh. That's in the mm-hmm. two thousand. When we get to run the jewels <laughs> live and direct, <laughs> uh, great! I'm gonna give a rice cooker update. It's oh, awesome, yeah. game changer! If okay. you like rice, get a rice cooker. <laughs> okay. That I don't know if like I it was per- from the future. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if I eat enough rice to because normally a lot of the rice I'm eating, like I'll get it as part of a meal out, oh, right? So yeah. I don't know if I personally consume enough rice. Yes. To buy I, a, mini I would say it's not cooker. probably for you then. You, okay. We eat rice probably on a weekly basis, and it it just makes things so much easier and restaurant quality rice. So mm-hmm. I, I fully endorse it, uh, hmm. and it's not too expensive either. Is it a staple of like? Is it how did it become a staple of your diet, Josh? Because you you are not like Southeast Asian, right? Which I would think correct. It's a staple not. in cuisine, right? <laughs> so like how did Southeast you... American? <laughs> just, yeah. uh, yeah. I just love. Uh, <laughs> I just well love played, Asian Matt. food, actually. Yeah. So okay. I always, uh, you know, we eat it a lot, and and it works well with uh, tofu. It's it's easy uh, to incorporate and make it vegetarian um, mm-hmm. dishes with it. So that's why I eat a okay. lot of it. There we go. Do you get all the arsenic out of it before you? Uh, does that the rice maker part of the deal? Doesn't it, doesn't rice have a high quality quali- quantity of arsenic in it? I don't know. But you are supposed to rinse your rice. That is mm-hmm. a, a, an important step in making good rice. I thought that yeah. just made it less starchy, not arsenic. Well, I don't rinsing, know if water yes. kills arsenic. But, um, <laughs> I, don't know I was about to say, it doesn't seem like I, I also feel like the people that live the longest in the world are from Southeast Asia. So like it can't be super terrible arsenic, right? Because it wouldn't be killing. Don't people eat apple eat it every seeds day, also. Right? They have arsenic. He can poison people. That mm. But isn't it like the dose is the poison? Isn't that the old saying, right? That like we use botulism to do Botox, but it also can kill you like instantly, right? We use botulism to do Botox? That's what Botox is. It's like a form of botulism. Really? I yeah. did not know that. Science but it's corner like, over here. It's often Boom. used. It's like, you know, the dose Science. is the poison. Yeah, science. <laughs> but yeah. So, um, yeah, but um, we... we okay. uh, I would like to do that one-hit wonder thing again, by the way, that we did the other week. I thought that was a surprisingly effective segment when we did that, but we'll, we'll revisit that another time. But um, anyway, enough with us yammering on. Uh, mm. Josh, you want to run down the albums? Sure. We okay. will be starting with Bad Brains, Eye Against Eye, followed by Boogie Down Productions' Criminal Minded, and finishing with Metallica's Master of Puppets. So... I realize that this is the fourth time we cover Metallica, correct? And it got yes. me to thinking, how many... Third time. Rab- third time. It's, it's third third time. time. Okay, I'm sorry. Sorry, I, I went ahead. Uh, so third time. And then I was thinking to myself, how many rap albums have we covered? And we've covered Grandmaster Flash. We've covered Run DMC, the self-titled. Boys. And yeah, I guess Beasties would fit, right? So we have mm-hmm. covered one more rap album than we've covered Metallica <laughs> albums. Now that will change monumentally. Yes. As we get later in the 80s, but especially the 90s and 2000s. I blame Metallica be... for that. They should have had way more albums to c- compete to keep up with rap. 
they would <laughs> later just give them time matt because they have a fair amount so um yeah and then this would be our first uh excursion into bad brains catalog so should be exciting uh but before we get there i know josh has a movie corner segment that we're gonna do uh but i assume matt has some this week in music history and we also have like this week in music deaths unfortunately so <laughs> yes. um like it right is, hot off the presses it is not a movie corner it is internet killed the video star video our video music oh, video segment i misspoke yep. it's okay i misspoke I as long as you watch them i did okay he did his homework but uh yeah. matt why don't you go start off with the stay in music history before we do all that. right let's do it such is a history of where someone has been killed all right so 60 years ago 1963 the beatles made their first national television appearance in the united kingdom on a show called thank your lucky stars uh, they performed Please Please Me, so 60 years ago it all started. Wow. Um, kind of. Uh, 56 years ago in 1967, the Monkees were at number one in the UK singles with I'm a Believer. It was the group's only UK number one. Um, and I I didn't know this. I don't know if we mentioned this, John. I know we, we don't think we covered this song on the Monkees. The Carol King wrote covered. it? Neil Diamond wrote it. Or it Neil says. Diamond. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. We did. We did. Like we in did that one, it. we mentioned like that the Monkees had a remarkable amount of famous people who wrote their songs, like Carol King and um, Neil Diamond and Harry Nilsson, and like mm. the the it, the list goes on and on of people that wrote Monkey songs. So it's kind of amazing, actually. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I didn't remember the Neil Diamond thing, but they said mm -hmm. that over they had one million fifty one thousand two hundred and eighty advanced orders of the single. And it went gold within two days of release. Wow. Um, also noting here that it is one of the fewer than 40 all-time singles to have sold 10 million or more physical copies worldwide. Uh, so that is a it's big a great, song. It's a great freaking song. And I mm -hmm. I mean, you know me. I've said for a long time that I just don't understand why the monkeys get mm. so much shit. Like they're, they have like more than 10 and you could argue as many as 20 to 30, like really, really good singles. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and what do you think was better, the monkeys version or the Smash Mouth version? <laughs> Why did you even ask that? <laughs> I, I, it's clearly the monkeys. You think, I don't know. There's somebody out there who thinks that the Smash Mouth version is better. I guarantee yeah, I'm not singer even gonna, of Smash Mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to sort of engage with that question. Oh. I'm just going to let it float. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 52 years ago in 1971. So this is in the, the Manson trial, the Charles Manson trial. They actually played tracks from the Beatles white album uh, that were uh, played in the courtroom in the Sharon Tate murder trial to find out if any of the songs could have influenced Charles Manson and his followers to commit murder, which they played the whole didn't they white write album? Helter no, they played on the walls. So that's they played a little bit of a yeah, they played some so songs. They didn't oh, play the okay. entire White Album, but they played songs, including Helter Skelter. But yeah. I just found that interesting. They're like, oh, we got they played the songs in the courtroom to try to, as a defense of Charles Manson for murder. What they people. think they were like going to get up and inspire them to attempt to murder someone, like in the courtroom? Yeah. Or yeah, like what, like. Well, I know, you know what like I did my Chappelle first murder. I was after listening to the White Album, so, you know. <laughs> the Chappelle Show sketch, right? Where he would just play. <laughs> The music, right, to see if people dance to it. Like, yeah. is that what they were going for? To see if like the Beatles would inspire them to get out of their seat and attempt to murder someone? Yeah, I so. yeah, I don't know. I just I saw that. I was like, that was that's just a weird thing to do in a courtroom. Um, yeah. 
I don't think it worked though. I think pretty sure they were they were still convicted of those murders. Um, Thirty years ago, 1993, Fleetwood Mac reformed to perform at Bill Clinton's inauguration. That's we've talked about that before. That's when uh, "Don't Stop" was used as mm-hmm. as the theme for his campaign. And uh, so that was, I don't know if that was the first, they reunited. They, I think they've reunited several times. They had reunited several times. I they, believe that's uh, on the Mount Rushmore of Boomer moments. Yeah. Uh, like oh, many, totally. many things conflated for the Boomers during that day. So, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, 22 years ago in 2001, uh, reported that Paul McCartney was set to become the world's first pop star billionaire. Um, and I, I think he's still one of only a couple. I think Elton John's up there as a billionaire. Um, but uh, yeah, Dr. Dre and Jay Z, right? Aren't yeah, they, they probably have to. Yes, I think we talked about this before. We kind of listed yeah. like the richest uh, artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that mm-hmm. they are. But yeah, that was 22 years ago that that was projected. Uh, 12 years ago in 2011, Steven Tyler from Aerosmith made his debut appearance as a judge on American Idol <laughs> during the premiere of the show's 10th season. How I guess long ago was that? That was 12 years ago. God, that seems like it was like 22 years ago, doesn't it? Yeah, it seems longer than that. Yeah, you know how people he, say, "Oh, I can't believe that was so recent." That's like the exact opposite of that <laughs> idea. It's like that seems way longer I, ago, twelve years I, ago. I barely remember that. Like when I read this, I thought for my first reaction was, "I don't remember him being on it." And then I had to think a little bit more, and then I I do remember the pictures. But I guess he replaced. Maybe that was the first year Simon Cowell wasn't hmm. uh, a, a judge. Well, like and, Paul and, Abdul, I think had exited stage left by then too yeah so but i think yeah. i think steven tyler replaced simon cowell was his Did he? that was his role it doesn't yeah. seem like he would slot like you it feels like there's a person for each of those right like yeah and he's like the record producer like it he should have been the like, randy uh the other guy should have been yeah like the randy or the paula i mean paula abdul would have been more like okay we're gonna take sort of more of the performer mercurial yeah. performer and replace him another mercurial performer and but yeah it seems yeah. like if like say it was just still Randy and Paula. Like who's gonna run the show? Steven Tyler. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean Steven. Not Steven well. Tyler's. He, he's you know he's got the he's got the the Kavorka, You know the charisma. So it's like that. Yeah, but you know I just like see him like talking like that as opposed to like yeah. being able to say all right, like like the next. Like who yeah. says like okay next artist amongst those three? Like who who takes the lead as the you know, the Paul McCartney I, of the group? I I do not know. I didn't. I don't think okay. I watched those seasons. Okay. I never watched American Idol uh, at all. I didn't watch any of the seasons. So, like, no. I, yeah, maybe I'm misappropriating how important Simon Cowell was to the <laughs> flow of the show. Uh, nine years ago in 2014, Bruce Springsteen scored his 10th United Kingdom number one album with high hopes, putting him ahead of the likes of ABBA, David Bowie, and Michael Jackson. And uh, this achievement puts it, put him on the level uh, with other artists like the Rolling Stones and U2, who also have 10 UK number ones. Uh, the Beatles lead the pack with 15. Madonna's got 12. Elvis mm-hmm. is tied with for, for, with 11. With what other artist? I was shocked at this. Drake? This is, nope. Taylor Swift? Okay. Nope. Adele? Uh, <laughs> nope. That's a good guess. Well, no, she doesn't have 10, yeah, 10 she albums. Doesn't. You got to have, have, have a lot of albums. Rihanna's list. Nope. Are I, we close? I'd be I'll shocked. Take two more, I'll it. take two more guesses. I'd be Mariah Carey. Oh, if it's, okay, then it's not anybody. Okay. It's not Mariah Carey. Nope. And, and, and actually, when I saw this, I was like, okay, it's for some reason that makes sense because I, I remember hearing at some point that this artist had sold Ed a Sheeran? Lot. It's, uh, no, it's Robbie Williams. Oh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Never so I was guessed. like reading through all this, like, Robbie Williams is up there. Yeah. UK's own Robbie Williams. 
That's right. Whatever that's I say, whatever <laughs> I do, I didn't mean it. That's that's the other was one. That that's said. not him. That was no. That he was in that group. What's the uh, take that? That's the name of that group. That's really? Wow. There's a call right there. I just remember the. Yeah. Was it Millennium or whatever? Or yes. Millennial. That mm-hmm. was the song. That's the one. I know one Robbie Williams song. Um, Isn't and, he like uh, naked with the paparazzi, like scoping him out on something in that video, if I remember? Or am I, I just remember a disco ball. One? Yeah, oh, okay. a shiny suit or something. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> the gold suit. Yep. Not the um, Millennium. Millennium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you slap a bunch of people. <laughs> Uh, 2018, five years ago, the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner announced that Tom Petty had died accidentally from mixed from a mixed drug toxicity. And listen to this, man. I didn't know this. It was a combination of fentanyl, oxycodone, oxycodone acetylphenol, and despropionol fentanyl, which are all opioids, including also temazepam and alazapram, which are sedatives. And Cialopram, which is an antidepressant. So I had no idea he was on that. I thought it was just fentanyl, but it was like five other drugs. Um, but they, his wife and his daughter said that he had multiple medical problems, including emphysema, knee difficulties, and most significantly, fractured hip. Uh, the statement, statement read, It is our feeling that the pain was simply unbearable and was the cause for his overdose of medication. We feel confident that this was, as the coroner found, an unfortunate accident. Hmm. So um, sad news there, Tom Petty. I, lots yeah, of drugs. A, that's yeah. a lot of different, seven different downers, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Oof, yep. Um, I also wanted to say, I mean, we talked about that there were a lot of deaths today and there was actually one actually today. Uh, but Carl Perkins, we never talked about him, mm, um, yep. but he was a seminal influence in early rock and roll. He, yep. he died 25 years ago uh, at the age of 65 from throat cancer. That was in 1998. Um, and there were a bunch of other people kind of that, um, uh, you know, that I that it, like like side men and stuff like that i didn't go through all of that but um uh uh but we have a couple of birthdays um and i i will well i guess i'll start with dolly parton she turned 77 years old today born wow, in 1946 nice. yeah um and then we have uh rod evans who was an early member of deep purple i think he was the singer okay. one of the early singers of deep purple turned 76 today you don't really see too many rods anymore do you rod. at least in terms of names <laughs> yeah <laughs> i wonder why that is inanimate carbon rod <laughs> uh it's just and... one of the names like butch and hank and several although it's yeah, starting Dick. to even become like john and mike and or, or like all of our names. <laughs> Josh, you're starting to see no one named these things anymore either. So maybe we're the next generation of yeah. Hank and Butch and Dick and Rod. <laughs> so. Chet. Yeah. Chet. Chet yeah. Hanks. Tom Hanks' kid's name's Chet. Yeah. I saw Chet. that. Mm-hmm. That's another one that doesn't come up very often. Uh, also born today in 19, uh, 1950, turning 73, Francis Buckholtz, who is the bass player for Scorpions. I know... I don't think we ever covered scorpions, but we did talk about them. So is I it thought Buchholz I or Buckholz? I don't know. Okay. I <laughs> think it's Buck. I think it's Buckholz because Buchholz? the only Buchholz I ever knew was the one we all know, right? That random high school. I never heard it pronounced that way. Buchholz. Oh yeah, you're right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the winds of change. Uh, that was a chart. Mm-hmm. That was a number four hit in the U.S. And they do hold the rec- scorpions do hold the record for the best-selling single by a German artist and band. Hmm. So for um, a rock, do you like a hurricane or winds of change? I think it's Winds of Change. I think that's okay. what they were. Wow. Best-selling single. That's, Best-selling that, that's what I would... by a German artist in the U.S., you mean? 
Um, by a German art, art artist and band, I would assume so. Yeah. Well, who would be their competition? Like yeah. Nena? Nena. Falco. Falco. We know the Krautrock bands weren't yeah. busted out top top 50 hit or 40 hits. So right. I'm trying yeah. to think, has there been anybody in the last 20 years that is a German I don't think pop so. art? Like Rammstein? Kraftwerk. Rammstein, I don't think, was hit the top Rammstein. 40. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. That's a good question. Not a lot so of yeah, so we all were like, really German, but it's like, yeah, it kind of it has to be right. Like, who yeah. besides, if not the Scorpions, then who? So, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, most popular German musicians. Oh, you're doing just an uh, impromptu Google. <laughs> Sarah Hans Zimmer. <laughs> hey, <laughs> well, yes, I guess yes. That's that does work mm-hmm. uh i don't we know. have I lots of german other... listeners too so i want to say that we are not knocking the german people we love our crap crowd johan so sebastian yep. bach mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well yes they, they, they do occupy a, a disproportionate if the top 40 extended to the classical era yes ludwig van, ludwig van beethoven yes yeah wasn't he austrian about, it's a well in this search he appeared that's a good you know what you might be right about that ludwig, yeah. ludwig van no he's german is he okay? Yeah, Mozart's says Austrian. So. I know that, so yeah. I did, wasn't sure. Yeah, that's yeah. Germans don't really cross over into the pop, you know, rock. The yeah. United genre. States yeah. pop. Maybe there's yeah. a robust. I feel like there's at least a thousand German dance artists who had like top five hits in the '90s in mm. Europe yeah. that just mm. did not. And maybe some of those acts we think of as like, like just random dance acts. Maybe they're German, and we just don't know. Like. Like, do I know what, like, Two Unlimited was? Like, I don't know. Are they British? Are yeah. they German? Are they, are they – really, they could be anything, right? I oh. Just, they're vaguely European. Nico. Okay. Nico's but was German. She, she wasn't putting out top 40 hits, though, Matt. No, I'm just trying to – I'm yeah. just yeah. – the You're people that I've heard Germans of. Now. Yeah, you and then, uh, oh, I was thinking, this says top... Lou Vega. I was thinking of Lou Vega. <laughs> Lou, Lou Be- <laughs> Mambo right. number five. Yeah. <laughs> that guy is not German. No. <laughs> uh, and it's, I, I know this is kind of breaking a rule, but this is kind yeah. of a CTS classic. So I just got to okay. say, um, turn, uh, born 80 years ago today in 1943, Janis Joplin was born. Okay. So, wow. Um, yep. yep. Would be um, 80, huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, hmm. older than Dolly, uh, three years older than Dolly Parton. That's what I was thinking. I was like, "Wow, she's three years older yeah. than Dolly Parton." Um, I find when I do these birthdays and I see the ages, and I'm like, "Dolly Parton's only seventy-seven. Like for some reason, she's like ninety in my head. I don't mm-hmm. know why, just because she's been so omnipresent." But um, and then, well, yeah, we, jo- Josh, you want to announce the uh, the, yeah. the unfortunate news, news of the day? Yes, yes. Broke. Going uh, going to that sex mansion in the sky. David Crosby <laughs> dead at eighty one. Unfortunately, he was uh, according to his wife, he was uh, dead died due to a long illness, and mm-hmm. he was surrounded by his loved ones at the time of his passing. Um, she reported. And they said, quote, although he is no longer here with us, his humanity and kind soul will continue to guide and inspire us. His legacy will continue to live on through his legendary music. Peace, Mm -hmm. love and harmony to all who knew David and those he touched. We will miss him dearly. At this time, we respectfully and kindly ask for privacy as we grieve and try to deal with our profound loss. So somebody that we have talked about a lot on the show. Sure have. Especially season one. He was a central theme in many many episodes. Somebody who had a great Twitter presence also yeah he, he always slagged on the doors and 
uh, I think recently was commenting Kanye. on people's joint rolling capabilities and, <laughs> and all, all music from like 1980 on, right? Basically yeah. fell off a cliff for him. So listen, yeah. isn't David David Crosby seemed to me to be like the Babe Ruth of joint rolling. So like anybody yeah. be up beyond him, mm. like they're they're just gonna naturally roll an inferior joint, <laughs> right. you know. So he shouldn't get too mad at people because that's a I that's a high standard to live up Does to. Does that make Willie Nelson like the the Hank Aaron of probably Yeah, he could probably take it. Roger could, Maris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. We'd have to think about what that analogy would go out but, to. But yes, if we had a Hall of Fame for CTS people that we discussed, he would be in the first class yeah, of CTS folks with uh with the producer Tom uh Tom Wilson. Wilson. Tom Wilson would also be in that inaugural class, I think. Um those two come to mind immediately. I think Phil Spector's crazy ass would also yeah. maybe have gotten. Well, keep in mind because Crosby wasn't just with the Birds and CSN and CSNY, but he also like founded, you know, found Joni Mitchell, like you know, yep. brought her back from Florida to California, and um, and just yeah, showed up character. in a ridiculous amount of stories like that yeah. he yep. would have. It's like got yeah, head so. underneath the table and like <laughs> the, the, the conference negotiating contracts, well, stuff like he... you know, like a Tuesday for everybody. You know, <laughs> who did he come out on the stage with? When like CSNY fired him because he just random was it the yard bird like who was he out there with that he like played another oh no he got fired he got fired from uh, the birds and then he played with uh, Buffalo Springfield at, uh, at like right. Woodstock or something like that yes. or, or or another fest maybe it wasn't Woodstock maybe it was like Monterey or something like that I think it was Monterey and he and he played with them and that's how he kind of got started with CSN. Well, so dig back in the archives for season one if you want to. It's going to sound worse than it does now because we were still figuring out how to, you know, record during that time. But some of the the banter, um, chances are if you open up half the episodes in season one, there will be a David Crosby reference. So and eighty one, man, that's like that's unreal. That's some mm-hmm. that's some good good genes he's got to to make it <laughs> to that many drugs and party yep. like that. Mm-hmm. Still make it to eighty one. Mm-hmm. So that's why Melissa Etheridge picked him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. To, to be the father of her child, yeah. Of she and her at the time, wife's child. So, okay. Well, let's pivot, if we can, over to the video segment. So this week, instead of three, Josh smartly, I think, narrowed it down to two because they are two very interesting ones. Um, but Josh, take it away. All day, all night, all music Internet killed the video star segment of the show where I pick interesting music videos that came out the year we are covering this week. And our albums are, well, 86 and 87, but I picked out uh, uh, videos from 86. And this week I picked two classics that I think both you guys are probably familiar with. We did Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer and Genesis's Genesis Genesis Land of Confusion <laughs> and uh, both of these are, are available on YouTube obviously you can watch them there and uh, both great songs and both interesting music videos so let's start with Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer and um, does anybody want to try and describe what you saw when you watched the video I'll let you take this one, Matt, and I'll take <laughs> Land of Confusion because they both will involve some table setting. Yeah, well, it's it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, animation kind of. Mm-hmm. So it's like Peter Gabriel. Most of the video is just him kind of like singing towards the camera, but then there's just a variety of 
of effects that are happening in and around him. Uh, you know, he's changing forms and, you know, there's like a claymation aspect where he kind of turns mm-hmm. into like he beats himself with a hammer and then he kind of melts away and there's a lot of stop. It looks like it's very quick. I don't know what the effect is. I don't know if you looked that up at all, Josh, or like yeah, stop motion. It's a stop motion effect. So, Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, and there's a lot of cool things happening in the background. He's like riding a roller coaster and then there's like fish swimming by and he's, you know, at the end, he's like chickens. And at the end he's in this house and all this furniture is kind of like moving around him and and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, um, I also remember at the very beginning, it reminded me of Beavis and Butthead when they, because it's it's basically like a, 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 a you know sperm fertilizing an egg. Right. And I remember it's watching Beavis and Butthead scene, like, yeah. oh, it's sea monkeys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, so yeah, it's I remember that video being very. Uh, it, it was always making the top you know, of the, of the, the list of the best videos of the year. I think I might've won best video of the year in 86, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yep. and it was just, you know, and, and it's still cool watching today, you know, with the animation, it's, it's certainly, you know, you know, rudimentary compared to what they could probably get away with or do today, but it was, it was pretty groundbreaking. It was pretty creative and different. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it won those awards and stuff. So, and by the way, I gotta say, I haven't listened to that in a while. What a great song I know. that is. That is just, it's a that, and I remember not liking that song. Like I was kind of still in more in my hair metal days and whatnot. I liked more guitar. So that was kind of like, not my, not my genre, not my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. But, um, but as the years went on, I, I came to appreciate it and, and him more as an artist and, and just yeah, like the end of it's great. Like they have this breakdown and the kind of the song goes in a little bit of a different direction. It's got a lot of soul and, and whatnot to it. So it's a great song too. Um, so, uh, but yeah, very, yeah, it was good watching it again. Very, uh, very, very creative. Yeah. It's, it's like a five and a half minute video and there's a lot going on. So it keeps your attention and, yes, and, um, and yeah, a video only enhances uh, that good of a song in my opinion and it's just everything's very fluid like it's things change and it's just like it all intertwines mm-hmm. so whoever directed it um you know had probably had their hands full with yep. uh trying to trying to make all that fit so john what'd you well, think well i'll save my opinion on the song for when we do so mm-hmm. um but in terms of as a clip i i kind of thought to myself um like there's a lot of videos in the the late eighties and early nineties of like heads, just like heads, like close up, t- yeah. like close up head mm. videos, you know? And I just, it, it kind of disappeared as a way of doing video. Like there were a lot of them. And then in our formative years later, right. You didn't see too many videos right. where it was just this one individual's head. It had its moment. Right. And this is one of those head videos that is an iconic head video for me kind of mm-hmm. like Sinead O'Connor right nothing compares to you as another classic head video I think the only one I can remember post 1995 was like Radiohead uh no surprises right yeah Where they're drowning Tom York slowly yep. but um that's th- a cool video yeah there's a lot of those in this era though and like I think that what stood out to me was the song was a good fit for the animation because I find it to be kind of a quirky song. It's got a lot of what I consider to be almost like vocal onomatopoeias where Mm -hmm. it's as much sound as it is lyric. Like, like it just, it sounds kind of as much as, and it's, I think it's designed that way. Right. And so it kind of fit with the narration of the song, whether it be a train driving around Peter Gabriel's head or him turning to like a gelatinous 
entity at one point with just eyes. Like mm -hmm. it did seem to sync up at least artistically vision wise mm -hmm. with what the sound was like, which I don't know if when I was younger and I was watching it, I quite put together as much. Um, I also am always amazed at like this Peter Gabriel because I think of him because my dad listened to so much Peter Gabriel, but like he, he rarely pulled out. So Peter Gabriel, he, he was pulling out like shock the monkey, you know, Peter Gabriel melt Peter Gabriel. So, or like when he's in Africa, Peter Gabriel, right? Like that's the stuff that I remember. So like, I almost forget that this Peter Gabriel exists, which is weird. Cause I think this is the Peter Gabriel that did exist for most people. So, um, He's an unusual pop star, isn't he? Yeah. In some ways, he's not. Oh yeah, and yeah. and I think the '80s had more had like equal parts the most pop starry pop stars ever and the most bizarre pop stars ever. Like, there's a lot of pop stars in the '80s where you're like, how did this person become <laughs> a pop star? You know, because they wouldn't have in the '70s or the '90s or the '00s or probably even the late '60s, right? But in the '80s, you know, mm -hmm. we talked like. Thomas Dolby, Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, there's um, like Kim Carnes, right? Like you think of all these different people that became pop stars and you're like, how did they pull that off? You know, like, uh, and I just, when I was watching the video, I was like, this was a massive video. And yet Peter Gabriel such an unusual protagonist Yeah. Um, for this sort of big, broad um, video. So. And yeah, all his videos are kind of like this. When he did Steam, when he did, uh, he, he, there was a couple other big videos. Big time. Big time, right? That was yeah. He did a lot of the the, anim the stop animation that you were saying, Josh. Yeah. So this is kind of his 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 bag. Back. Yeah, this this team did that uh, big time uh, video it's very later. Similar. Um, yeah. This this won a record nine MTV Video Music Awards at the eighty seven ceremony. Uh, it still has not been topped. I doubt it ever will because of the prominence of music videos today yeah. in today's climate. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if they have seven categories to, <laughs> anymore. You know. Yeah. It was directed by Stephen R. Johnson, among other music videos. He directed the first season of uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse, which I thought was funny. And oh, um, Ardman Animation um, helped with this. They are known for Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep and Chicken Run. Um, and the Brothers Quay, who are two, bro two uh, brothers who are um, uh, well-known animators that are, provided claymation, pixelation, and stop-motion animation to this video. And uh, Gabriel laid under a sheet of glass for 16 hours while filming the video one frame at a time as part of the Jeez. process. Would you like to hear the videos that won video of the year in the MTV uh, Music Video Awards in the 80s? Sure. Yes. I'd like to also point out that they've continued to give this award up all the way to last year. Um, so if you're curious about what might have won recently, I can fill you in on that too. But here are the ones from the 80s. The first ever one is from 1984, and it was The Cars, You Might Think, mm. um, which features Rick Ocasek as a beat, like a fly, right? And among other things. Um, yep. Yep. If That's I remember. a cool video, yeah. 1985, Don Money. Henley, The Boys of Summer. What? I thought That's it was going to be Money for... Or maybe 86 was Money, was money 86, for Nothing? 86? 86 is Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. Yep. Which, by the way, beat out um, two videos that I think are equally as iconic. Uh, Take On Me by AHA yeah. and Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer. Yeah. So, um, the I Boys would say, of Summer? 
Now, let me, I'll do this too. And I won't segue too much, Josh, but just for me in 1984, the video that probably should have won was Rocket by Herbie Hancock. Although you can make a pretty good argument for Thriller and Girls Just Want to Have Fun too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the other nominee was Every Breath You Take. 85, Boys of Summer. David Lee Roth was nominated two separate times and <laughs> did not win for either of them, which is a travesty, in my opinion. Also, Don't Come Around Here No More was that year, which oh, is man. another incredible video. Yeah, it was. Um, and if you want pure comic value, We Are the World was nominated as well. So, like, I think the Don Henley video was the worst of the five. So Yeah, he's just um, sitting in a car. Because David Lee Roth dressed as a, as a conductor with naked women's asses in, like, California, California Girls, Girls is yeah. pretty iconic as well. So 86 was a, was a big year with Dire Straits winning. 87 was Peter Gabriel. Um, the, one of the other nominees, Land of Confusion by Genesis that year. Uh, the other ones, With or Without You by U2, The Boy in the Bubble by Paul Simon, and Higher Love by Steve Winwood. I think the two we're doing tonight probably should have won. And then 88 was Need You Tonight by In Excess. Um, I, wow. I I, in that. looking at the nominees, I would say that's the best of the five and then in 89 this notes for you by neil young which is not a music video i don't think i even what no um i don't either i would say that like a prayer by madonna probably yeah. should have won that year um but yeah and then interestingly enough 1990 was sinead o'connor's head video nothing mm -hmm. compares to you which uh boy that was an interesting one because another don henley video don uh end of innocence but also vogue by madonna and janie's got a gun by aerosmith were there yeah. and just to take it to a logical end the winner of the 2022 music video award was taylor swift's all too well the short film um, <laughs> other other nominees were woman by doja cat way too sexy by drake Industry Baby by Little Nas X and Jack Harlow, Brutal by Olivia Rodrigo, Shivers by Ed Sheeran, and As It Was by Harry Styles. Wow. So, I don't think go. I've seen any of those videos. So that I've seen multiple of those videos. I've seen the Olivia Rodrigo, the Little Nas X, and the Taylor Swift for sure. Hmm. Um, I feel like I saw the Ed Sheeran one at some point too. So, yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, Good anyway, I thought I'd share that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, the next video we're talking about is Genesis Land of Confusion. And, John, why don't you describe this one? So I, I guess you'd say this is Genesis getting political because there's a yeah. definite point of view on uh, this video. And it is basically like Thatcher and Reagan era, uh, America and Britain, respectively. Yeah. Uh, no bueno for the members of Genesis, I would say, in terms of the theme that they're telling right here. I probably should mention that they are pretty ghastly looking puppets, as <laughs> yes. are all of the people in this. Uh, I find the three caricatures of Genesis to be particularly hilarious because they are just <laughs> incredibly outsourced versions of their faces. Yeah, as, <laughs> all of the puppets are pretty yes. hideous, which I mean, this video has always been one of my favorites, both because I think the puppeteering is very funny and also because the political message makes me laugh. It's sort of like a um, the, the general theme, I would say, is that the protagonist in this is Ronald Reagan, <laughs> yeah, I would say, for sure. In and of yes. himself. Not the Ronald monkey. Reagan. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, the, in the, and the protagonist's uh, partner in crime is Nancy Reagan <laughs> yes. as well. And uh, Ronald is uh, sort of aimlessly reading a book, which is like the Bedtime for Bonzo book, which was uh, like the film, I think, that 
Reagan mm-hmm. was most yep. known for back in the day. I think it was also funny. Did you catch the time that Ronald Reagan was going to bed, by the way? That made me <laughs> chuckle. Like four something. 4.30 p.m., yeah. I think it said. Yes, yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> He's got a stocking that. cap on and stuff like that. So anyway, um, Ronald Reagan, I think, was, was well known in his era for having a intense fear of nuclear war that's something that comes up Mm -hmm. in a lot of bios about him and i think this plays into that a little bit but anyway this is like a fever dream of ronald reagan like imagining nuclear war coming there's visits from margaret thatcher and i think i saw kissinger was in there and gorbachev i believe i saw like mussolini was in there at one point yeah yeah ayatollah (laughs) ayatollah khomeini was in there so basically it was a who's who of 80s uh political figures right uh there's a jimmy carter in there as well i believe so I, i wrote down a bunch but um so Reagan's in bed with a teddy bear and a monkey, I think, is in there as well, who also mm-hmm. comes up. And uh, yeah, and basically it's a combination of like a sort of a fear of nuclear fallout type of theme with Genesis being interspersed in between. Sort yeah, of Genesis as puppets. As pup. Well, yes, <laughs> yeah. everybody's puppets. Yes, I should everybody's admit. There are no live humans in this. Right. So uh, basically what's happening is it's going there and and you sort of get the idea that Reagan has accidentally pushed the nuclear fallout button um, by mistake, but then you find out at the end, at least you think at the end, right, that in a pool of sweat, right, he actually, it's just all a dream um, or so you think, right, because Mm -hmm. they sort of indicate that after he, I think he says at the end, right, right, that's one heck of a nurse or something like that, and yeah, and Nancy like hits him with a scuba diving thing and yeah and so yeah there there's also a lot of pop culture uh yes you know uh care puppets in there i saw prince uh mm-hmm. putting mustard on his tongue there's <laughs> like, a there's so i wrote down i wrote down the ones i recognized were like princess die there's yeah, a yeah. hulk hogan one was in there uh madonna uh i think like what's her name the the televangelist woman who cried uh Tammy Faye, Faye Baker, Baker yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the one was supposed to be Sting, if I remember correctly. Uh, yep, it kind of so. looked like Sting. It was all but, the it, um, yeah. We Are the World. It was yeah, kind of that... like a We Are the World thing. Like Michael Jackson yeah. was there. Some well, like, I think that's their, like Pope John Paul, right, was playing yeah. like the electric guitar, I think I wrote down. Yeah, so. Yeah. yeah. Matt, what did yes. you think of that video? Oh, yeah, I love that. As a kid, I love this was one of my favorites because it's, it's so cartoony. And, 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 you know, there's dinosaurs in it, too. Like mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan's riding a triceratops with like a, you know, cowboy hat on and stuff. So yeah. it, it, I, I always liked the song, too. So um, it's got like a really funky kind of like electric bass thing going on. That's yeah. it's like this synthetic sound that is very much an 80s thing. Um so, uh, but yeah, I always, and the effects I always thought were like the, the scene where like where they say, this is the hands were given and the hands open up like these oh, huge yeah. hands. And then there's many hands inside of it. And I was like, when I first saw it, I was going, Whoa, his hands are in the hands. Um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, it was just, I, th- this was a very appealing for, you know, eight year old me watching, you know, the, like this, the, the, the visually, even though they're kind of creepy looking puppets, it's still right. like, Hey, it's puppets. You know, it's like this cart it's guys, this cartoony vibe to it. So I didn't, I didn't really pick up much on the, uh, the political nature. <laughs> How? Ronald- the whole video is, is a <laughs> I, political I knew, I knew Ronald Reagan and stuff, but I didn't know anything about like, you know, like what was happening in the world that I knew. Oh, you mean like, people- oh, you mean the like eight year old version of yourself? Yeah, right. I, oh, yeah. Right. As a kid, I didn't care. I was like, oh, there's guys, military guys yeah, or yeah. whatever. And there's like a big explosion. That's cool. You know, I didn't know about like, you know, 
the well, cold, I mean, I, my, my knowledge of the Cold War was very minimal as right. an eight-year-old. So, well, I was even six-year-old me was able to figure out that they did not think much of Ronald Reagan because it yeah. certainly, while yeah. it was a satire, it certainly was uh, not a flattering satire. I would say for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely funny. Uh, I, I always question this type of video because n- people nowadays would have no idea who any of these people are. So it's it's kind of a snapshot of the '80s and. You would really have to have like when you say people to know. nowadays. Do you mean like people under the age of like yeah twenty or people okay. who people who didn't live in the eighties? I would say or or don't have knowledge of eighties history. I mean, you can't just as I would not know who probably some people from the sixties if they did a video of you know people contemporary historical figures. You know, because especially with with puppets, it's hard to sometimes pick out who's who. And um, point being is that I think it some of the impact is probably lost if you were watching it nowadays. Um, did, uh, what did you think, uh, Matt, of the Disturbed cover of Land of Confusion? <laughs> oh, <I laughs> have you heard that? that? <laughs> do you, do you yes, remember that? Because sadly, it is something I think of when I hear this song, which I do not like that I think of. But I remember just being appalled at the time it came out that they felt that they uh, could cover I don't remember song. how it went. I'll have to go back and listen yeah. to that. It was like if Disturbed covered Land of Confusion, Matt. It's like exactly what you would think it would sound like. Yeah. Didn't they cover like the Sounds of Silence too? Didn't they do that? I think you might be right. Yeah. But it's that like waka waka guitar like the whole time, right? You know, with like, you know, also, we ain't making promises. You know, that like real. Uh, like, it can't yeah. be good. It was of its time. Yeah, Disturbed yeah. likes covering older songs everything they do sounds like a really bad wrestling theme disturbed i feel like is their whole like yeah so anyway well the puppets i just will say that the puppets were created by um uh, peter fluck and robert law from the tv show splitting image which is the british tv show (laughs) that was on from 84 to 96 and phil collins saw the his puppet on the show and had them create do all the puppets for the video and, and for the band. So I think it was like a satire show, right? Where the right, puppets right. played yeah. out stuff. Yeah. And it was one of those shows, you know, like all British shows where there's like six episodes a season. So that's why it went on for so long, but it's a lot of puppets, a lot of work, I would imagine creating all different yeah. characters and things for, for a week. But, um, it was uh, nominated for MTV video music award, as John pointed out, but lost to sledgehammer. And, uh, oh, there is a reference to 2001 in the video with the bone, with Reagan throwing up the bone. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yep. It hit like David Bowie, didn't it, or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of good stuff. I recommend it, both the videos this week. But Yeah, I would a... too. I both though, Although I particularly love that Land of Confusion video. It's <laughs> yeah. one of my all-time and, favorites. And like Matt said, I, it is a good song. I, it's really catchy. Genesis, mm-hmm. again, coming through with a, with a hit and... Uh, you can't. I don't think a video can make a song better, but a, a a song, a good song can. The video can enhance a good song, if that makes sense. Oh, I think a video can make a song better for you sure. So? There's there's songs that I like as much because I love the video as the song oh, in okay. many ways. But that's because I spent ages of hours, right, like watching <laughs> right. videos growing up. You so were Beavis and to Butthead. some degree, they're syncretic, right? Yeah. The video. Matt, I think Matt would probably say something similar, right? Yeah, what do you think, Matt? 
Uh, that's a good question. I never, I haven't thought of that before. If I, if the, if the video makes the song better, I could. See well, like, let me give you an though. example, Matt. Is Janie's Got a Gun a better song because Janie's Got a Gun video is a pretty good video, or no? Like, I don't I'm know if that's a good that example. example. I don't remember. I remember like having that. Would might have been my time frame where I, I was like actively like I did not like Steven Tyler. So if I saw okay. that video come on, I'd turn hmm. it off. Um, you would not have seen Steven Tyler much in that video because it's basically like a short film where a right, girl like commits murder and runs away. I don't think so. that would. I, I'm not saying you're wrong, John. I just don't know if that's yeah. the example. So I might yeah, have to marinate on that it. a little bit. I was know. just using that because it's like a. I can't think of that. Like it's one of like I think. 300 songs right that you know I can't what i always remember like i just video. i don't know why it just popped in there that mike and the mechanic song where he's oh yeah he's on the hill or something gets, can right? you hear me running and the yeah. guy gets abducted by an alien or something like that it's very oh creepy. i was thinking the remember living that? years where they're like on a hill somewhere i think right? it's mike and the mechanic no this is like the this is the eerie kind of like can you hear me running and it's like the kid mm. gets abducted by an alien, like his father's gone or something. And then like at the end, he's, <laughs> he's getting beamed up on a spaceship and it was really creepy. So well, that would be a great like uh, essential question. Like what videos are like, but I'll, I'll give you two that come to mind. For, we talked about some in the 80s, right? Like AHA yeah. and stuff like that. But I think the two that always come to mind for me are like, I can't hear November Rain without thinking of the November Rain video. And I can't hear fucking Runaway Train without thinking of that got horrible like in a bad like not bad but like just the pictures of the abducted children with the dates they've been missing since up it's like oh it's like they found about a third of those kids about a third of those kids made it back it was god it was like all the kids were like my age at the time and you're just like oh my god this is like the saddest video ever so like i can't i cannot hear that song without thinking of that video so it's just unfortunately i mean good good for soul asylum for doing that because that was the point they also yeah they also updated it to like make you know to get rid of the kids that were found and add new kids that weren't so oh wow yeah Mm -hmm. i did not know i don't think i've seen that video it's were they like always socially active? I don't. Like that? I mean, it was just. I mean, just <laughs> I think it song. was. Just, yeah, no, they, I don't think so. I think. Uh, I just but, remember the last scene because they interspersed these pictures of real kids, right, with when they disappeared, but with also like these narratives. And the last scene is like this woman goes shopping, right, and she looks away from her baby at one point and then yeah. like somebody like hustles the baby into a car and the woman's running out in, like slow yeah, it's motion. Fucking, it's fucking horrifying. So it's just like, I forgot oh. about that. Yeah. So it's just, I didn't, if you can tell. So what a horrible run... way to end a video. Yeah. I, could, I mean, or, or, you know, I mean, they wanted you to pay attention, but yeah, yeah it's just like, Jeez, that's why my mom stopped taking me to the grocery store. Yeah. Burned into John's brain. Well, it's just that last scene too, where Like he trails out. It's like run away, but it always seems to say, and it trails out. It's like this, like sad guitar as like, the, Oh, it's just horrible. And she's screaming. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's just horrible. horrible. You're right. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> Anyway, I wouldn't wouldn't say that that enhanced the song, though. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Well, it did because it's a sad ass song. And it like so it did in some ways for me, like the song is not designed to be uplifting. It's designed to be like what it is. Right. Like traumatic that there's this happening to people. Well, I don't think they wrote the song with that in mind. I think that they wrote the song and then they were like, hey, somebody had Mm. the idea for the video and then they just matched it up with that. I don't think I don't know. Pretty much lines up, though, if you read the lyrics. I mean, it's kind of like a person that like runs away from home. I have to do a deeper dive on that. Yeah, that's that's for the lyrics. Like, can you help me remember how to smile? They could somehow all seem worthwhile. How on earth did I get so jaded? You know? Like, that yeah. could mean so many things, though. 
and then you're gonna run go on the runaway train matt it's yeah so anyway um i don't know how we got on that after this but yes land of confusion awesome video yeah good stuff all right let's get to the show proper Bad brains, my friends. Bad brains. Eye against eye from the year 1986. Um, I did share uh, recently with Josh the videos I was, or the songs I was going to pick. But as I am want to do when I pick songs, I pick them in the moment. Yes. Uh, And I sometimes forget what they are. This is a good example. I know I picked reignition. I just can't remember if I did reignition at the beginning or. Yes, uh, in the opening montage, you heard Secret 77, and now you're going to hear Reignition. R. Kelly, I love him. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's a different ignition. The remix. Oh, so. right. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Perhaps the. Um, well, I'm not going to say that. Because, uh, <laughs> amongst the many victims, amongst the many victims of R. Kelly, the fact that ignition remix no longer exists <laughs> is yet another in a long line of the things victimized by R. Kelly. But uh, Matt. Run the numbers for us, please. All right. So Bad Brains, Eye Against Eye comes in at number 700 in the 1980s on mm. Best Ever Albums. Yeah, Really? Too <laughs> yeah, low. 700. Uh, number 69 in 1986. <laughs> 69. Yeah. <laughs> number 4,647 of all time. It is Bad Brains' third highest rated album on Best Ever Albums behind 1983's Rock for Light and 1982's self-titled Bad Brains. Uh, it did not make Rolling Stones list, and Bad Brains is ranked as the number six hundred and fifty eighth highest rated artist in the overall rankings on Best Ever Albums. Well, this is where Best Ever Albums, Matt. I've talked about some of the limitations mm. of the the chart. Like this is pretty much considered to be Bad Brains' most famous and seminal work. So it's odd to okay. me that it would be the number three yeah. album because this is. I've rarely ever heard anyone not start with this album. Like okay. when you talk about bad brains, and even in my research, this seems to be well. We'll go over it here, but it's that's odd to me a mm. little bit. So I'm wondering who's voting to to do that. But anyway, bad brains. Uh, well, let's start by giving a little bit of an overview. Bad brains is considered to be one of the more definitive American punk rock and hardcore groups. Right, both mm-hmm. of them are in there. Um, their telltale sound was the merging of punk reggae and then a sort of a speed rock metal ethos um all of those are pieces of what their sound would be uh there's of course other things that stand out about bad brains i think one of them is that they all have jazz backgrounds they started as a jazz group which we'll talk about in a little uh bit they embraced unabashedly positive themes in their music even within a community hardcore that didn't always do that right like it was more life is struggle themes Mm. uh they were rastafarian and 
uh, I mean, I guess the elephant Hence in the, the room. Title. They, <laughs> yep. And yeah, exactly. Which I'll go into what it means in a little bit. And then uh, they were also four black men, which was not exactly a group well represented in punk and certainly not in hardcore in that era. So all of these things were things that uh, sort of made them stand out within the movement. But let's go back in time a little bit and talk about uh, how it began for them. So Bad Brains is formed in 1977 in Washington, D.C. Uh, at the time, the four members of the group, who are Gary Miller on lead guitar, uh, Paul Hudson on rhythm guitar, Daryl Jennifer on bass, and Earl Hudson on drums. Uh, I should mention that later I'm going to... Uh, flip the names for two members because Gary Miller eventually becomes Dr. No. That is his <laughs> title in the band. And Paul Hudson becomes HR. So um, they would go as HR and Dr. No instead of, uh, I guess, the, the names of birth right there. Yeah. So two maintained real names and then two um, became sort of nicknames. Uh, they were in a jazz fusion group called Mind Power and sort of it was a little aimless at that point in 1977. They they kind of weren't feeling it anymore, I guess. So they were, as it seems to be explained in my research in different places, pretty much every outlet says they were sort of looking for inspiration. And inspiration comes in the form of one of their friends, Sid McRae. And so Sid McRae um, in 1977 had gone to some shows and become a, become a fan of punk music. Um, and so he sort of began evangelizing this new music, because remember, this is 1977, this new music, uh, punk rock, to the members of what were to become Bad Brains. Um, and as the story goes, he particularly shared the music of the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. So Bad Brains is another in a long line of how many bands that we've covered that like either saw the Sex Pistols or heard the... I mean, they, mm -hmm. at this point, they're like that Velvet Underground story that like... Only so many people heard them, right, in 1977, <laughs> yeah. but, like, almost all of them formed a band in some way or another. So Count Bad Brains is another one because they listen to this music and they say that is sort of the energy and the, somewhat of the sound and the vibe, I guess the vibe, I guess would be a good way to put it, that we're looking for. Um, interestingly enough, while this punk rock uh, eureka was coming, inspiration, if you will, uh, the members also went to go see Bob Marley. And they decided to basically convert and take on the tenets of Rastafarianism at around exactly the same time. Wow. So they were looking for inspiration musically. And uh, in doing so, they both inherit a little bit of the, the punk scene. They inherit a little bit of the reggae scene, right? And, and certainly the Rastafarian larger themes, right? And they begin to make music, right? Which not surprisingly takes punk and fuses it with reggae and dub sort of principles. And that becomes what Bad Brains is playing um, in their early career. Um, they begin to play shows in D.C. and get a following. Uh, what becomes instantly tough for them in D.C. is that they be begin drawing the hardcore crowds, right, that we covered in you know, Dead Kennedys and Black Flag episodes, right? Mm -hmm. And so they are drawing some of the earliest, earliest proto-hardcore crowds, right? Because outside of Northern California and New York tri-state area, -y, you know, area there, like Northern New Jersey, New York, stuff like that, DC is the other hardcore uh, area in the early days. And the 
DC crowds, as you might imagine, are overwhelmingly male. They are also overwhelmingly white. And they are also extremely violent. Um, and Bad Brains went out of their way to try to sing positive themes, but they also had the type of physical shows that somebody like a Henry Rollins or stuff had, you know, that grav drew people in with the energy. So mm -hmm. sometimes it was like the energy was drawing it in, but the the themes, right, of the music was kind of getting lost, right? It was just sort of assumed because of how physical they were. So this leads to them losing a bunch of bookings. They actually, they write a song about it called Band in D.C., uh, and finally, because things were getting difficult in terms of them making their living, they moved to New York City in 1980. And uh, obviously, we're, we're talking the New York of the late 70s and early 80s, right? So this is a New York where it's a anything goes type New York. So the idea of getting banned was not likely to happen, right? So mm -hmm. quickly after they move to New York, they start to record some music and most notably, they record a pretty famous song, probably the first Bad Brain song I think I, I personally ever heard, all 93 seconds of it. It's a song called Pay to Come, and uh, that is the song that sort of uh, gets them noticed in the larger punk world, the larger hardcore world, music press. That's also where they break through there, and they begin playing quite a bit, including at one point they're playing almost daily at CBGB's and get a pretty big following there. This uh, so as the process is going, sort of organically, they're gaining a crowd. Um, at first, they sort of described as they're like looked at as a novelty almost, like hey, this is you know four black guys playing punk, right? But then over time, people are like, you know, these guys can go, you know, at the same time, and they get a following of a a, a bunch of different folks, you know, punks, hardcore, general music fans, you know. Um, edgelord music types right you know kind of everybody's showing up at their shows and uh this leads to them getting a record deal with uh ro excuse me roir records uh i don't know if you would pronounce roir as a word i don't think so because it's ca stylistically capitalized but um i'm gonna go with roir i never saw it described as anything as a word right and i, I looked mm -hmm. quite a few places um, but this was a, I found this funny, this was a cassette-only record label. So I guess they, they just made, cause, which seems like one step up from, like, bootleg company. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, they're basically mass-producing cassettes. So uh, they are in charge of uh, putting out their first album, which was self-titled. And uh, it was pretty well-received, um, especially within the punk community. And most notably, I think it drew one very big fan, one Rick Ocasek of the Cars, and he basically volunteers to produce their second album uh, called Rock for Life in 1983. So um, I did take a listen to both, and they're sort of similar albums, um, but there is a noticeable difference on the second album in terms of the professionalism <laughs> of the production. <laughs> it goes from like very raw to like, Rick Ocasek produced your album. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a step up um, in terms of uh, the sheen, shall we do? It's certainly not overly sheeny, but um, it's it sounds like an album that it has a more professional veneer, I guess I'd say. So uh, during this time, Bad Brains is playing regularly, but they're experiencing a variety of challenges that various members of the grant, uh, band say some of them have to do with uh, racism, both in general, but also within the movement. Some describe it as more tribalism, right? Like certain hardcore punks wanted them to be kind of 
meaner or more violent and other punks didn't want the reggae part you know they wanted to play faster and harder and kind of things along those ways and then also the band themselves had kind of an interesting history of makeup and breakup um, type stuff and so they actually they had some tensions and they even went on hiatus briefly uh, while they had tensions but they kind of get their shit together and eventually like so many acts we've covered in the 1980s so far they find a home guys and you want to take a guess as to where that home becomes for them? Where do Stiff many of records. these bands? Well, that's a good guess. Oh, Stiff uh, Rec- it's another SST. one. SST. You got it, John. <laughs> yeah. SST Records. So, yes, but that was a good guess, Matt, because it is either yeah, SST or Stiff. But, yeah, in this case, it's SST Records, and they sign the band, and they issue Eye Against Eye in late 1986, um, right around the time that uh, the album was being recorded and released. Good old HR, uh, for those that need to be remembered again, Paul Hudson, who started as the lead guitarist and became the lead singer. Um, the reason he became the lead singer was because that friend, remember Mr. McRae, who had introduced them, he had started as the lead singer, but he did not last very long. So Paul Hudson takes up the mantle, which it's kind of remarkable to think that they didn't identify him as the singer from the beginning mm-hmm. <laughs> because of how distinctive his voice is. But uh, yeah, so he's at this time, unfortunately, uh, incarcerated uh, on or getting arrested and was briefly incarcerated on cannabis possession charges. Uh, imagine that, guys, you know. Um, <laughs> and so he actually recorded the vocals for Sacred Love on this album from jail. So the, what you're hearing on the album is him basically singing the lyrics right into a recording device for the album from jail. So I thought Hmm. that was very interesting. Uh, As Josh mentioned earlier, the title Eye Against Eye refers to the common Rastafarian phrase, Eye Against Eye. Uh, It is used in place of uh, the first person plural. Um, For those that may not be grammar intensive there, the first person plural is we, right? So that's kind of we. So instead of saying we, you'd say I against I, and it's to signify the unison of the speaker, the audience, and Jah, which is God, uh, in love and peace. So it has a symbolic value as well as a grammatical um, pronoun-esque type value as well. So that is what's going on there. So... um, it's the only time we're going to cover Bad Brains, so I can fill in some of what happened to Bad Brains later. I might do that at the end of the segment because uh, I want to give us plenty of space to talk about this. Um, Josh, why don't you go ahead and take the first take on Eye sure. Against Eye? Surprisingly, na- never heard this album before, even though I've known Bad Brains for a long time. So I'm glad to fill in this gap. And wow, what a, what a revelation. I really love this album. It was such a interesting fusion hybrid of of hardcore and punk and it seemed like hard rock at times and there's some funk in here and and also um the uh and that the reggae influences is apparent as well they just seem like such a singular band uh in terms of their style i really um really dug their sound they had such great um rhythm to them and some great uh bass lines in here and and just like these like really jammy like guitar licks and and uh riffs and really um dug the vibe that they they were going for on this album 
I can see how this band and this album are so influential, both good ways and bad and bad because bands like 311 clearly have just like ripped off bad brains style and kind of ethos probably and and sound uh, based on this album and even a band like sublime i think is probably quite uh influenced by them sublime are huge fans of yeah brains, just um, in case you're wondering yeah yeah mm-hmm. they, it, they just fit that aesthetic in some way that kind of like slackers i don't know socal style even though bad brains wasn't from there um so it, i think it's easy to appropriate and i think it's such important uh to the history of of you know punk rock and and hardcore that these guys were black also um, and also important part of dc i think that brings a certain character to them and the positive nature of of their lyrics and stuff is also important and something i picked up on uh, on this album i really like the lead singer's voice i think he really adds uh, a uniqueness to their sound and it just perfectly complements the music that they're going for i think their jazz background um is is apparent when you listen to kind of the the rhythm of these songs and and the structure and just kind of the the groove it's it's really like a jazz kind of groove to it and um and it was such even though it's a it's a short album i think it's like 35 minutes or something um every song is good they're all different uh and it's such like a pleasure to listen to the um the other thing is i picked up on other things that i think come later like on the on the song let me help that opening is almost like guns and roses took the opening yell and and applied it to their song when they did uh, welcome to the jungle or, or, or on appetite for destruction at least and uh, just there's some other things i picked up on sound wise that c- recall later later tracks like that um, for example uh, uh, standout tracks for me that i that i really liked um are uh the ones that john picked reignition secret 77 but i also really liked let me help and she's calling you but really, there's no bad there's no bad tracks on this album. Um, I haven't heard their earlier albums, I, and maybe John, you can touch on this. Does this sound like the earlier albums, or is this kind of an evolution or of um, of their sound? It's an evolution in the sense that I feel like they've put more of the pieces together here, mm-hmm. right? Like they've taken their influences and figured out how to. Um, merge them in a more refined way whereas Mm. the first two seem more like um i'd compare it a little bit to like the replacements Mm -hmm. right um or or even like and and you guys really didn't listen to early replacements albums right or or even i listened to some okay well even like sonic youth right where the first couple albums are much more proto right like skeletal versions of it and then they start to figure out okay let's take all of these things and make them somewhat poppier but also somewhat more palatable and but but still keep our edge um so much like those two bands that come to mind immediately i feel like those early albums kind of fill that role and and this is the um the let it be or the daydream nation right of like there got it yeah so yeah and i would say too that you hear hardcore and you probably think of of screaming and and kind of 
you know, ab- abrasiveness. And, and that is not what this album is. Um, it's, it's hard to even call this hardcore cause it's, it's very listenable. The singer, the lead singer is, uh, very, um, smooth in his singing and, and does not really scream that much. And it's just kind of a different type of hardcore. If you can even still call it hardcore when listening to this album, but it's just, uh, a singular album. I, I really enjoy it. It's going to be high on my list of, of uh, at, at the end of the decade, and um, it, it's I give it a, a big thumbs up for me. Awesome. How about you, Matt? What do you think? So uh, my first reaction to this was very similar to uh, my reaction to the Minutemen. We did double nickels on the dime because I was expecting. I mean, Josh, what you were just saying about hardcore. Yeah. Like I, I had known Bad Brains by in name. I knew they were from DC. I think I might have seen a short video clip of them performing here or there. So I was expecting like a more of a black flag kind of more abrasive, aggressive mm-hmm. sound. And, and that wasn't it. I mean, maybe a little bit. I think the first couple of tracks are a little bit more, probably fall more in the realm of the punk uh, genre mm-hmm. sure. um, and maybe more of the quote unquote hardcore part of this record, uh, you know, Eye Against Eye, maybe House of Suffering as well, the intro uh, too. But, um, but it wasn't nearly as like, uh, as, as hardcore as I thought it was going to be, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so that kind of, so it was an initial surprise. And I think as I, the first time or two I listened to this, I was not exactly sure what to make of it, but this was certainly an album that I think benefited for me upon, you know, having repeated listenings because I definitely started picking stuff. Once I realized what it was um, and what it wasn't, then I started, then I could kind of, you know, get to know it a little bit better and understand it a little bit better. So, uh, so overall, I, I know I did like it. Um, the more I listened to it, the more I liked it, the more I was hearing into it. It's certainly all those things that you guys were saying, you know, melding a bunch of genres. I was, you know, definitely picking up on that. Um, it, it, it did, it did remind me a little bit. It, there's a, there's, I know you talked about like, oh, it's got funk and it's, it's, it's got, you know, there's elements of punk and, mm-hmm. you know, hardcore and, um, and reggae. Uh, but this also is kind of like, it's, it's a certain type of rock in that it, it, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, kind of early mid nineties alternative rock grunge, you know, mm-hmm. kind of style, whether it was, you know, the, 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 the type of guitar they were playing or just the tone, some of the tones kind of like this, this toned down, this darker sounding, you know, kind of um, thing that was going on mm-hmm. reminded me a little bit of the grungy stuff, you know, like a little bit of the Alice in Change, kind of the minor key, the heavier, you know, uh, playing there. So I was like, okay, well, this is kind of, you know, you know, uh, a little gateway into the, what the future is going to be in some regard. Um, so I, I, I liked it. I, I did like the guy's voice as well. Um, I thought, uh, there's some cool guitar solos in here. Again, that's not really something that I associate too much with like, right. It's not really a punk or a hardcore thing. I mean, they kind of try to keep it simple, but this is where the metal comes out is kind of like the flashy guitar parts that they're throwing down there that were pretty cool as well. Um, and, uh, you know, really, I think I, similar to you guys, I, you know, I, I really liked reignition. That's, that's kind of like rap rock, even though he's not rapping, but like the way that that beats going yes. down, you could totally hear somebody rapping on top of that. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything that I would consider here to be actually rapping. Well, but, similar, huge fans of, um, them are rage against the machine as you. Okay. Imagine. Yeah. And that makes sense. You know, you could, yeah. I, I could see that, you know, that, that, 
the, the the way the instruments are playing with the beat and the way that's coming together, that seems like something that would have been wrapped over in a future, yes. you know, several years later on. So I like that. Secret 77 was a really cool song. I really like the tone of that, the, the um, uh, you know, uh, the effects. There's some, there's some effects that are happening throughout this record. Um, you know, they, they, they go back to more of the punk style with Let Me Help, which was cool. And then She's Calling You kind of gets a little bit more into the funk. I was living color was another band that, 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 that picked up, that, that popped up in my mind, not mm-hmm. only because, you know, the, the sound, it's also another, you know, full, you know, fully formed, you know, African-American rock band, which, you know, is not really something that, you know, it, it, it didn't really happen a whole lot. And, and, and they kind of, I, I would assume that living color was a fan of these guys as well. Um, and picked up on some of what they were doing, but, um, life, love the way it ends like sacred love hired gun. Yeah. I don't think there was a bad song on here. I don't know if I'm a high on uh, as, as you are Josh or what I would assume John would be. Um, cause there's still elements of this. It's not, it's not my favorite, but it's still really good. I, I really did like this and was, was surprised. And cause I was kind of going and being like, Oh man, this is going to be, this is going to be a hard listen. And it was like, what it, when I realized it wasn't, I was able to let it be what it is. And the more I listened to it, the more I liked it. So definite thumbs up on here. It's, it's a really cool record. Yeah. Um, I, I really love this album. Um, I'm familiar with this album cause, uh, although not as, I don't revisit as much as I should because as I listened to this, I was like, why do I not revisit this album as, as mm-hmm. much as I do? Because there's there's very little I don't like a lot on this album, and I'll kind of go into that. But I, I do want to expand a little bit when we're talking about um, kind of what it sounds like and stuff because this represents sort of our first foray into like the, the DC punk scene. And we really didn't talk about Minor Threat and then by proxy Ian McKay and by proxy Fugazi, who mm-hmm. we're going to talk about pretty soon, who, you know, Minor Threat does not sound exactly like this, but uh, I can't help but think like what a vibrant scene, you know, DC hardcore was right around that late 70s, early 80s period, right, where all that's there. I think notably um, folks like uh, Dave Grohl, right, was deeply yep. into yep. that scene and it was a seminal influence for him as well um even though he was from new york originally and grew up in the midwest i know tom morello is another guy that kept tabs on that quite a bit i mean obviously um rage on that covers album covered uh, minor threat specifically but yeah you could see some of the dna of of that scene in them and also like i said we'll, we'll save some for when fugazi comes but sort of the evolution of that scene and how it manifested itself through bad brains and fugazi and some of the other bands um the other thing that wasn't really mentioned was like this is the father of so much other music but you guys kind of didn't go to an area that clearly I think was directly inspired which is like the pennywises and fishbones and stuff yes. of the world which is yeah the the immediate spiritual predecessors right mm-hmm. uh, sublime's another one certainly <clears throat> um I, I had never thought of 311 matt but like to some degree right josh said that. element or josh uh, elements of it but like the real predecessors are yeah like the pennywises and yeah <coughs> i apologize in the fish bones of the world yeah i think um, a lot of bands that i was listening to were clearly influenced by and I, this band and I, I, I never really listened to either of those bands, so yeah. uh, so I wouldn't have been well, able to pick Pennywise that. punked it up a little bit more and took the I know bro out. him, that's what I know, yeah, uh, right? It's yeah, I mean, but yeah, it's they they punked it up a little bit and anthemic it, but there's elements of that, and obviously, mm-hmm. Fishbone added a little bit more ska as opposed to reggae, but it's the same sort of formula, but yeah, there's a direct 
uh, element there. There's even a little bit of what, um, like, Bad Religion and later Rise Against, right, which was a, mm-hmm. basically in many ways like a Bad Religion tribute band, um, like, took on as well. And these are all going to be bands that we're going to cover a little bit later, but because we haven't so far, they might not pop to the front for you guys as much as they do for me in terms of their influence. But um, you mentioned earlier what's different from the earlier albums, and it's really the richness of the sound. And to me, this album is like a fusion album. And so it goes back to their jazz fusion roots Mm -hmm. to some degree because there's more hard and even at times as you said matt sludgy guitar on this album where yeah you said alice and chain yeah i hear what you're saying like alice and chains there's times where it gets poppy enough that you could be like this has like mm-hmm. billy idol type vibes you know what i mean at different times you could hear it you'd be like interesting you know like this sounds like it could be a slow off-tempo like billy idol type song you know punk adjacent I guess you'd say. Then there's times where they play faster, especially the beginning of the album, where it's a a more ear-pleasing version of hardcore punk, right? Because it is. They're playing fast and they're playing uh, frantic, you know, with high levels of energy. And they're playing pretty simple chords. Um, And then I love the variety on this and I love the fact that a song like um, Secret 77 doesn't sound much like Sacred Love, which is at times almost spoken wordy and I'd call it like almost incense rock a little bit, like the, the feel and the flow of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just love that it's bouncing around and it's, it's uh, mood setting. Um, mm. I also, it's one of the few albums that we've covered where not one piece of the band stands out more to me than the others. And how many bands can you say that about where like the bass, the rhythm, the singer, the drummer, like, I, I didn't find one piece where I was like, okay, that's the virtuoso piece or the dominant piece, right? And isn't that in some ways perfect for an album called Eye Against Eye? <laughs> and like, I didn't put it together until later, but I'm like, it really is a sound in which nothing dominates or is minimalized. They're all there if you listen for them, but at no point did I find myself gravitating to one of the instrumental pieces, which mm. I can maybe on one or two hands name the amount of albums we've covered where I haven't zeroed in immediately on one specific instrument. So, um, for me at least personally. So, Mm. but yeah, I I love this album. I mean, it's if you in any way, um, enjoy punk music or enjoy even something like, uh, power punk, you know, or pop punk, right. If that's your lane where your punk comes in, you know, like, you know, that Green Day, uh, Blink-22 lane. I even think this album is for you if that's your lane to getting into it because it is accessible enough. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't doubt that there's not a another band, right, when you're called Bad Brains. I think, much like I joke around with, like, Iron Maiden, right? Like, there's just certain people that aren't going to listen to you because they're going to have an assumption of what you sound like. And then when you listen, I think you would be pleasantly surprised as mm-hmm. to how ear pleasing this music is. And uh, I do want to mention that this album has quite a bit of funk and reggae on it yep. as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of funk bass yep. lines and funk influence that from my memory of the early two albums is a piece they added to this. Cause I do not remember as much of a funk presence on the yeah. first two albums as much. So that was a piece of the puzzle that they, they integrated for this album. Mm-hmm. I think that is probably what contributes to it being so listenable. Also, it's just oh yeah, like that. I can't understate how overstate how like that. There's such a groove to this album when I listen to it. 
Which almost just, sounds oxymoronic for hardcore, right? Because yeah. like hardcore in no way is associated with the groove. Well, I go and I'd go so far as to say there's pop elements in here too. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, I just I don't even think you have to go far to say that. Yeah. I think there's they're all over the place. But it, yeah. and it's not. But that's that's why I'm like I don't know. Like I and I know I'm looking at Wikipedia here, and it does say hardcore punk is one of the descriptions here. But I'm like I. That might be one of the of all the things on you know it says alternative metal funk rock funk <laughs> yeah. metal right like yeah those are I all s- better descriptors I think than, than than hardcore I think that just that term and maybe my understanding of hardcore I was about needs to, to be expanded not, a little bit yeah. you, you know might not and maybe totally that's get it. hardcore yeah it's a it's a I think you still think of it as like as much the movement Matt as opposed to like like a sonic. I think of it as screaming and I think of it as like lack of lack of melody and lack of, you know, just like, and it's more about the energy and the, and and fast and yeah, the scene more so than anything. But this was, but uh, we've seen some melody in hardcore, like in the dead Kennedys, right? Dead Kennedys had it. I was thinking more of a black flag. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is way more produced too than, than dead Kennedys. This is, yeah, I, this is of all the stuff that we've done so far that's been quote unquote in the hardcore uh, genre. This is easily my yeah. favorite. But remember, this comes out five years later right. than Damaged by Black Flag, yeah. right? And six years later yeah. than Dead uh, Fresh Fruit. Fresh Fruit, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. you're dealing with like multiple evolutions of the yes. movement. And that I think yep. is, and like we didn't cover like Minor Threat, right? Which created like a different lean in this and so are we going to cover minor threat or well because i mean remember people think of and i do i think of like zen arcade by husker do as being a hardcore album and I oh, know i like you, that too that's right you very yeah. much did not process that when you listen to it as a hardcore album but i absolutely did and so like if you think of it as like a continuation right from like you know fresh fruit and damaged and minor threat to like what zen arcade and the minutemen album you know both of which yeah. get the re- uh you know, we're doing, and then like you get here, right. And think of it as almost like the third inclination or even the second, right. You know, bundled in with them, uh, you know, and like I said, we're going to, you know, the third generation, like moving away from like the equivalent of like pop punk, right. For the hardcore movement is what I was talking about. Yeah. You know, your Pennywise and you know, when it's kind of so accessible or early Goldfinger stuff like that, just stuff that, um, falls into that you know early bad religion some people call hardcore in some ways as well so it's and and yeah we haven't done fugazi which is another band you know what i mean that will produce a a version of what hardcore is so maybe matt it's just that like you like your idea like you know how punk is many things but like if you just listen to the ramones you would just think it was the ramones right but it's also like the buzzcocks and the clash and Green Day and yeah, you know, many yeah. things. Yeah, and I probably seem to expand, but it's yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it, it, it was just it's surprise. So I'm I'm learning more, which I guess is a yeah. good thing. But yeah. yeah, we're not. I guess I thought I guess we're not covering Minor Threat. So no. we'll we're, we'll do Fugazi though. I know they're both the uh, Ian. Is it Ian McKay? Yeah, I think we do two or three Fugazi albums. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So three thumbs up, which is a rarity, and uh, and the rare. Well, I shouldn't say rare, but uh, yeah. in, in a field that's tougher for you, Matt. It does stand yeah, yeah, for like, sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. But yeah. And I think I, it, not surprising that Josh and I lean into this. This is a little bit more of a pleasing sound historically for both of our ears. Yep. There Very true. Right. Okay. Going in a different right. direction. <laughs> Matt. BDP. 
Mm-hmm. All right, so we're doing Boogie Down Productions Criminal Minded. In the opening montage, you heard a clip from Remix for P is Free. And now you're going to hear a clip from 9mm Goes Bang. This Been to a crack dealer by the name of Peter. Had to buck him down with my 9mm. He said I had his girl. I said, no, what to you, stupid? But he tried to play me out, and KRS1 knew it. He reached for his pistol, but it was just a waste. Because my 9mm was up against his face. He pulled his pistol anyway, and I filled him full of lead. But just before he fell to the ground, this is what I said. All right, so this is the first time we're covering Boogie Down Productions. This is uh, Criminal Minded. It comes in at number 518 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number 50 in 1987. I think this was a little bit misplaced in our our catalog because we're still we still should be in 86 but whatever yeah. um so this is we're a little out of sorts but that's okay so 50 in 1987 3367 of all time it is boogie down production's highest rated album on best ever albums um it also came in on rolling stones list at 239 and bdp is ranked number 1768 of overall artist rankings in best ever albums so this is their debut album. It was released on March third, nineteen eighty-seven, and um, I didn't I didn't know this, but I guess it's it's considered one of the first gangster rap albums, um, the, the gangster oh, rap genre. For sure, sure, um, yeah. Who and look at the cover? Their, look at the cover. <laughs> well, that's I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Well, part of the so the cover is it's the the first time that a, that a major uh, release happened. It, rap, rap release uh, came out with. Uh, many <laughs> weapons on the cover yeah. uh so uh, well think we'll, about what we'll we've covered there, so yeah. far you know what i mean and compare and contrast the the rap albums we've covered yeah you it's, know it yeah. definitely it's, seems it's, like an evolution of the genre. yeah um so can you guys so within gangster rap there were two other artists that i saw that were ranked kind of as as earlier uh you know, forerunners of, of gangster rap be- okay. before BDP. Can you, hmm. one of them I'd never heard of, so I'll give you that. Can you name Big Daddy Kane? No, I, I, that name okay. did not come up for, for uh, gangster well, rap. Are we going, are we saying NWA? Is it, are we? No, I don't think they're around yet. I don't think they're around yet, but before them. So right around the time that this album came out, maybe a little bit before was Ice T. Oh, okay. Was okay. considered yeah. one of the yeah, first absolutely. first guys, mm-hmm. and then somebody I never heard of, who's considered the granddaddy of all gangster rap, Schoolie D. Schoolie D. Yep, exactly. Yep. So I, okay. I would have. Yeah, you give me more time, I would have got that. Okay. It's New York yep. legend. So yeah, so this is uh, this is a subgenre of of rap, which is uh, known for its portrayal of life on the streets, the gritty mm-hmm. nature of, of of what they are experiencing there. Uh, so the group was started by Lawrence Krizna Parker, also known as KRS One, uh, Scott Sterling, who's known as DJ Scott LaRock, Scott LaRock, Scott LaRock, <laughs> and uh, Derek Jones, who's also known as D Nice. Um, and it, I also got a kick out of this. If anybody didn't know any of the names of the members of BDP, just listen to the first few bars of any song and they will tell you multiple times yes. who you are listening to. Um, but that was a hallmark of yeah. early New York hip hop. Yeah. Right. I mean, you were going to call out your name a thousand times. I had never heard of Scott LaRock and I'm like, man, this guy, this guy must be, he's all over the place on this record. So, um, so uh, Wikipedia lists a total of 25 members and collaborators of BDP throughout its existence. But KRS-One has been the, the main the, the main constants behind this uh, project. Um, and 
It was released by B-Boy Records, which the group feuded with over, I guess, delayed royalties that they were supposed to be getting that they weren't getting. So um, the lawsuit happened and basically it was settled out of out of court. Um, and the band or the group later signed with Warner Brothers uh, after being introduced to them uh, by Ice-T. So Ice-T kind of brought the two together on that. So uh, the... So the some themes of this record include uh, one of uh, the first rap beefs that you're going to hear about uh, with mm-hmm. in, in and it had to do with the origin of hip hop because Bridge is over, Matt. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's yeah. what it's about. That's the whole song's about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this was uh, a couple of songs on here. The bridge is over and. Um, uh, it w- was basically a re- uh, retort to a group called the Juice Crew, who, uh, in one of their songs, at what that was called the Bridge, there was uh, some under some people thought that they were basically saying that rap started in uh, in Queens and BDPs from the Bronx. So some of the songs are diss tracks on here, calling out the Juice Crew for um, misinterpreting or, or misinforming everybody of where hip hop really started. So uh, BDP is definitely suggesting that that is in the Bronx. Um, so that was one of the first hip hop wars that we're, that we're hearing on this record. Uh, there's also a Jamaican, we're going back into the Jamaican influence. There's a Jamaican uh, influence on this record. Heard in a couple of songs, including remix for P is free, which includes a sample from yellow man's Zung Zung. And later on, this and I recognize that song. I was like, "That's that sound." I remember that from Black Star, which was yeah. Mostaf and Talib Kweli. Yep. And uh, so they they had covered that. That's that's also what you're seeing a lot on here. Is you can look up all the all the different ways that this album, parts of this album, were covered in future songs or, or songs that they used to put into this record. So there's certainly a lot of sampling going on there. Um, but yeah, but BDP is known as you know helping to place uh, a solidifying role for reggae in uh, in hip-hop culture. Uh, so some sad news related to this record. Um, one of the reasons I probably never heard of Scott LaRock was because he died about five months after the, the record was released. Oh. Um, this, Yeah, this all happened. So D-Nice apparently was assaulted by a group of, I don't know, punks, hoodlums, thugs, whatever. So he was getting harassed by some people, and he went to Scott LaRock to help kind of like quash the beef or to help him deal with it. And apparently LaRock goes to the house of one of these guys and he's trying to like make the peace. And one of the guys just starts shooting, opens fire and hits LaRock in the back of the neck, which, and he died about an hour later at a local hospital. And also sadly, even more sadly, leaving behind an infant son. Um, And after his death, Warner Brothers then backed out of the contract with BDP. So they lost their contract at that point. Uh, KRS-One kept the group going. He added, uh, at that point, he added his wife and his brother to join. And they did end up signing with Jive, RCA Records. And over over the years, KRS-One recorded eight al- a total of eight albums with them, four of which is uh, named under BDP, uh, the other four as a solo artist. Um, and so he, he did have a successful career after that. Uh, it became, the album itself is also, it became hard to find uh, because it fell in and out of pressings from di- different labels would pick it up and, you know, press it and then stop. And so it got, went back and forth like that until 2002 when a Boston-based record label called Landspeed Records bought the rights to all of the B-Boyd recordings. And then they, um, that, that resulted in a re-release of Criminal Minded, which from that point on, it's been much easier to find. Uh, so after Scott LaRock's death, uh, their music became much more politically conscious and, uh, you know, uh, 
with the next album, By Any Means Necessary, KRS-One started defining himself as the teacher and uh, symbolizing his emphasis on educating his audience members and fans about relevant social issues surrounding the African-American experience. So I was, that's one of the reasons that I was kind of surprised because I was, I am somewhat familiar with, with, with KRS-One and, and BDP and some of the, uh, the song, like you must learn. It's all about, you know, you know, educating yourself, learning history, learning about, you know, a variety of things so that you can, you know, be better suited to function in this world. So I was kind of like surprised. I'm like, man, he's gangster rap. I would, I didn't associate the violent, in, and the um, the gangster rap, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, a label mm-hmm. for for someone like him. But that it, it kind of makes sense that it was after Larock's death that he kind of went in a little bit of a different direction and started going more towards that socially conscious uh, type of uh, of message. Um, and he was also Karras One was also the founder of a movement called Stop the Violence. And that was in response to not only the Rocks member as well as a murder of a fan. Apparently, there was a, another murder of a fan at a BDP and Public Enemy concert. There was a shooting happening there, um, and so he got a number of other East Coast rappers to come together. They released a single called "Self Destruction," and they had all the proceeds of that go to the National Urban League. So, uh, fairly seminal, uh, you know, influential gangster rap, rap, hip hop, uh, you know, group here, and. Um, I am curious to hear your thoughts. So I think John, you are up. So, what's your take here, John? Yeah, this is uh, this is like one of the first rap albums I can remember listening to as a kid. I mean, this was like the type of stuff that older brothers of people I knew played, right? Mm-hmm. And I, it's it's the, when I think early, I think you know, Big Daddy Kane, I think Boogie Down Productions, I think Eric B and Rakim, and I think old you know old early ll cool j right that's you know growing up in the shadow of new york right that it was new york right that was hip-hop and, right. and it expands right but like there was a real um and it's kind of one of those things that's gotten muddled now but where i grew up right like there was a real pride that like there was a belief hip-hop came from new york like other people did hip-hop right and maybe people now think of the west coast and Atlanta and Houston and these places, right, as hip-hop. But, like, there still is a not insignificant amount of people that are like, well, yet hip-hop is a New York thing that New York gave the rest of the world, right? And, like, this is that that New York sound, right? But we talked about an evolution with Bad Brains, right? Like, this is the evolution of early New York hip-hop. So, you know, you've got, you know, Grandmaster Flash Furious 5. You've got um, Curtis Blow. You've got all the people like that, right? And then it kind of goes over, like you said, to Schooly D and Shaba Ranks and Africa Bambata, right? And all those folks. And then here is where you get, like, that grittier. The flow is changing, right? Yep. Um, the thing that stands out to me here is this is still the uh, DJ era, of hip hop too, right? The the MC hasn't totally taken over yet. That that doesn't yep. come to a little bit later. So it's funny, Matt, when you say they got dropped from their record label because I I would bet some of that's the violence, right? But I would also bet that it's like, well, when you lose your DJ, right? Like, what's yeah. your identity, right? That that was still a thing, right? That you your DJ was concurrent with the the MC, and so and yeah, this is that um that era where it's still very direct rhymes, like last word rhyme mm-hmm. schemes. Um, it's a lot of calling out <clears throat> and response. It's still got that early hip hop thing where you're identifying yourself and sort of, it's like a, a braggart culture a little bit, still designed primarily to get you to move. 
but now you're also bringing in like a consciousness to it, which, you know, we saw in things like the message, right. By grandmaster flash and furious five or like white lines, right. By, um, Curtis blow. And it's always been there. Right. But here's where the message isn't just that aspirational message. It's also like, for lack of a better way of putting it, like, like from the street. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's a song here about talking to and possibly even soliciting, you know, hookers on this album. There's plenty of songs about committing violent crime. You know, there's also some uplift songs, you know, but the, the ugly side of the streets is, I wouldn't say it's being celebrated here, but it's not being firmly and morally chastised either. It's being presented matter of factly as something that's going on, if that makes sense. Yeah. So lyrically to me, that's a step forward. And Matt, I think that is why the, the the early gangster rap is on this because it's the themes, right? Thematically, the stories being told are um, street dreams type stories for a lack of a better way of putting it. You know, that concept of street dreams, right? Like coming up, but you're coming up, you know, you're celebrating where you're from, but you're not always celebrating all the good parts of it too. You're just sort of telling t- slice of life type tales. Um, I would say... I enjoy the beats on this album quite a bit. I mean, The Bridge is Over is an iconic beat for me because it takes that other song, The Bridge, and it inverts the rhyme, the, you know, the beat of it a little bit. Like, So the whole song is sort of like a direct um, addressing of that song. Um, obviously, South Bronx, uh, the combination of, you know, the James Brown, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in there, you know, the... the dr- it, I would call, you know, I've called stuff drum and bass before. This is just drum, right? Like This is like a drum heavy um, uh, beat, right? With, you know, there, there's obviously bass because it's rap, right? But like the drum is so pronounced on this that like, you know, that, that sound of the drum, like, like tinny kind of drum sound, I'd say almost like hitting the hi-hat cymbal, but a harder hit of it as opposed to like a jazz version of it. Um, but yeah, South Bronx and the bridge is over are like bona fide early hip hop classics. I mean, those were songs that I would hear all the time when I was growing up, like you'd walk into stores, right. And you'd hear it. You'd friends of yours, like older brothers would be playing those songs and they'd be there. And um, I, it's funny because, you know, KRS one as from a lyrical standpoint was always, I, was his name was was he the teacher Matt was that his nickname if I remember correctly yes was that, that yeah, the teacher, yeah. yeah the teacher uh, yeah. but and at this like, time he was like the oh he was something else he had an initial nickname hang on a second I'll look it well up. like I think the teacher thing like my origin story as I always knew it was like he wasn't that like he was a guy that like he didn't he, he went to like libraries right and like lived on the street for a while and was sort of like a street intellect right but then he sort of veered after Scott LaRock got killed, right? Into sort of trying to be a more positive presence and, you know, in bringing in sort of the criminal minded elements of it, right? Like he had a more definitive um, moral stance on it, right? As opposed to like moral ambiguity, which I would describe this album as um, in terms of what was going. I mean, when you name an album criminal minded, right? You know, you kind of have a point of view. So... So yeah, he yeah. was the, he was initially the blast master, blast master, and then he right, which is teacher. more of like yeah. an MC, right? You know what yeah. I mean, like blast, and and a guy that like you know I'm gonna do disses, you know, and and the diss track right is a staple part of New York rap, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the most famous early 
New York songs, whether it be the bridges over here or, um, you know, like even mama said, knock you out. Right. It's like a diss song. <laughs> it, it's, it's literally a diss track. So, um, that's an, another piece that's being explored here. So prototypical New York stuff, but I, I won't take up more time than that. I, I really like this album. I, I think this is almost like an essential album, even more so than maybe like the run DMC and grandmaster flash albums we heard. Like, I think this album almost needs to be here heard more to kind of understand where hip-hop went in the 90s in particular because you could draw a straight line here to 90s hip-hop that i don't know if you really can with uh run dmc as comfortably right like i think that the line from like run dmc and grandmaster flash and stuff is drawn to here right and here on the evolutionary food chain moves it up quite a bit yep so mm -hmm. yeah i i agree i think that it, this sounds more modern or it's a step more in the modern direction than those other rap albums that we've heard even even differently than Beastie Boys I would say in a way uh, this is such a I would agree I think this is also an essential album um, it was a pleasure to listen to I had not heard it in a long time um, the gangster rap uh themes are are definitely here i think that's important i i like the um there's just so many hallmarks on this album the the dope beat i really like that song and i think it's one of the first times we've heard like an explicit sample with the acdc uh sample on it i guess the beastie boys kind of took took straight up samples but it's so recognizable the acdc guitar riff on on it um same thing with the James Brown sample you mentioned in South Bronx, but um, the also on the bridges over, is there like a Billy Joel reference or sound from a song on it? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's still rock and roll to me. Okay, he, that's he, what that's he what does I that. A, yeah, and yeah. they do it with like Hey Jude. He sings it they, like they, it. Yeah, they yeah. sing it, but they put their own lyrics into it. But it's yeah. 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 Okay. So there's he's a, not. They didn't sample it. It's just he just sings the the melody. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kinda. So the the humor the humor element is here too. The cle- the cleverness. Um, I really like Scott LaRock and kind of the DJing that's still around at this time, and hearing the record samples and kind of the way they play with the music. That you know that kind of fades away as we go on and becomes less uh, prominent. But I still um, enjoy. It. I'm a little, I guess, a little nostalgic for it at this point because I I feel like it's a lost kind of uh skill skill set that's not in rap anymore um even though so i think it's kind of one foot in the past one foot in the future in terms of that you know john mentioned kind of rap starting out being dance and party music and i i think that djing is 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 part of that but i really like that scott larock uh (laughs) like you said matt it said like 40 times but it, it gets in your head and you kind of like I don't know. I, I absorbed it, I guess, at some point. Um, the Also, I really like the funk and reggae that they kind of uh, infuse into the rap. I think that is valuable and kind of shows the evolution as well. Nine Millimeter Goes Bang, that's such a great song. Um, it, it wouldn't be the same song without the kind of reggae uh, inflection in it or, or beat. Um Really, every song on here is pretty great. Um, word from our sponsor, I really like the scratching on that. Uh, elementary is 
is great dope beat i really love how they shout out all the people at the end i think that's kind of a hallmark of rap too that that evolves and um i also caught the black star i didn't realize they just kind of like blatantly took the whole thing from from this song for remix for p is free and uh super ho which is a classic uh hilarious uh track that calls to mind later skits that involve sex in a lot of rap songs and um uh female backing singers singing the the chorus and just scott larock having sex with a lot of people um it's it's hilarious so a uh, big thumbs up for me I, I think some people might find krs one's rapping a little slow but um it, it works for this album and i think that's just kind of part of the evolution of it and i i didn't mind it um especially on subsequent listens so yeah thumbs up for me on this one yeah, I didn't really know anything on this, and um, it's I, I think it does really straddle that line between, um, you know, like the early hip-hop, you know, kind of a little bit more rudimentary, you know, and it's going to be weird for me talking about this stuff like I'm some sort of expert on hip-hop because it's not something I listen to a whole lot, but like, but there is like an early, you know, uh, uh, a sense to this, like, you know, kind of like a, like a more... Uh, basic kind of raps where there's not a lot of like stuff happening in the background. It's just kind of like a beat and it's, um, it's more stripped down and, and it, mm-hmm. and it is a slower rap compared to what would happen later on. But it's, so it's kind of like the, there's a very skeletal nature of this, of this album as, as a, uh, as, as, you know, kind of an early hip hop record and, and kind of, and then it would branch out, but then it also, but you get, you're right. It definitely delves into more, interesting things happening, whether it's something that's sampling or, um, you know, just certain beats like, and that's why I picked, you know, remix for P is free is a great, there's such, there's such a, there's a heft to that song. There's more mm-hmm. happening within that, you know, sonically that is much more appealing than something like poetry, for example, which is still, yeah. I still liked it, but it's, it's more complex and it's more interesting to me. Um, you know, and so when they throw out something like, you know, I like that, whatever the sound effect that they're using a nine millimeter goes bang. Um, is really cool. It's like a cool echoey kind of, I don't know what the hell it is. It's some sort of keyboard or synth sound, but it just, mm-hmm. it adds to it. Right. And it's, I don't think that the, that the rapping is, is changing all that much or really his flow or, you know, uh, his style throughout the, throughout the record. But when you throw in something like that, or even if you throw something like, uh, the, the, the ACDC guitar, like on, is that on dope beat mm-hmm. that like, it just adds this layer to it. And I've always liked that more when hip hop is doing that, right. Rather than just the basic kind of stuff that might happen in, you know, early records. So, so they are branching out and kind of going a little bit more in that direction. So I did like that. Um, I like KRS one's voice. Um, he, he, there, there are a lot of funny elements here, you know, funny parts here. I, I like the early, the, the disc track. I just, I found it funny. I remember John, you talking about earlier when I think we were doing the grandmaster flash, album and it's like it's such a new york thing and like you know it's a you know hip-hop is a very new york thing i was like okay yeah it started in new york but apparently don't don't screw it up it's got to be the bronx it's not it's not queens you know like you're gonna get we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna beef over that you know that that was kind of telling you that's a that's a and don't even yeah that there's people that will still not accept that other places like hip-hop is universal right it's like no it's a new york thing that other people 
we shared with you, but like it's our thing. Yeah, so, but I just yeah. I, and it's and it's totally and I far be it for me to know the history of it and like where it all started, but just like that, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's not just a New York thing; it's a very specific part of New York. You know, it's, yeah. uh, Queens and the Bronx are very different. Um, you know, it, which I don't know what that says about the later beef between East Coast and West Coast, which is much more broad. But like, did, did the Bronx and the Queens guys get together and like join forces for that? Were they friends about, you know, later on? I don't know. But um, so, yeah, so I, I, I did like this. It's um, it was a fairly easy listen. Um, but like I said, I liked I liked the tracks that had a little bit more heft to them that were that, that was going on. You know, um, I like the bridges over. Just throw a little bit. Throw me something in there. It doesn't have to be a whole lot. But just like if it's a nice little groove, a piano part. You know, um, I know they didn't have any on here, but sometimes I like it when they throw in like a violin part. That's just like a cool, mm-hmm. it's just a unique sound that just adds to the beat that's happening. Uh, to me, it is, is more enjoyable. So, um, so yeah, so I, 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 I enjoyed this. I'm, I'm thumbs up on it. Yeah. And you may not be an expert on rap map and I'm not saying I am either, but you'll definitely, and I, and you already are picking up on kind of how it's evolving and, mm-hmm. and getting more complex and, and changing. You, and, you and will be by that. the end of this podcast, yeah. Pat, because we're going to be covering a lot of hip hop. Well, I had so, and, and I do have, it's not like I'm a total, you know, neophyte idiot, right. Or neophyte, but like I, you know, I had, I had, I had a Dre album, I had Snoop, I had Wu-Tang, you know, yeah. Beastie Boys. So there's been a number of hip hop, you know, outcasts. So there's, it's not like I'm totally like, I had Vanilla Ice too and MC Hammer. <laughs> right. So like I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm somewhat, somewhat literate, but, well, I, um, but it's just, I also think it's better go-to. that we're authentic because I'm not going to sit and claim I'm some expert either. Right. I mean, some of it, I know better and I, you know, but I, I think we're coming at it, you know, from a point where there's stuff we're learning, but there's also like our experience we have having listened to it in various mm-hmm. elements. So, um, yeah, I think that's going to be cool as, and I don't know if there's any music that evolved as rapidly right and as many different times in the first 20 years as rap i mean to the point where you don't even call it rap after a while right like it's hip-hop now so it's you know and where's the line of demarcation when that happens right is it when the the dj goes away is that when it goes away from hip-hop yeah i've I've never been sure i've kind of just used the terms interchangeably but i i will say too like hip-hop i said yeah i said away from but into yeah (laughs) right um i will i will say for some reason i don't know what this says about me maybe i'm more of a prude but like a song like super ho like I, i i've always kind of been like I kind of roll my eyes at songs, whether it's rap or rock or anything that's just like overtly sexual, like talking like this braggadocious <laughs> yeah. thing about like, I'm just, I'm just nailing all kinds of chicks and here. I'm going to be really descriptive about it. And to me, it's always been like, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know what, co- it, it's not like it makes, I guess it does make me uncomfortable on some level. Just like, it's just like, God, what? <laughs> you know, like that's graphic, you know. But like, I don't know why they feel the need to do that. It just makes me kind of. I'm like, are you really nailing nail that many chicks? Like, I, I don't know. Like people that brag that much, it's just kind of, I don't know, a little eye rolling for me. But um, I, on the other hand, celebrate songs like that because they make me laugh pretty. Because I yeah. think yeah. most of them are done tongue in cheek and. God knows if we ever covered too short, Matt, you might roll over in your grave. Oh, some of them I know are just like <laughs> filthy, you know, like if I we know did there's more like... freaky tales. I don't know if you could make it through that song. So, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Did you have that reaction to like Ain't No Fun by Snoop Dogg back in the day, Matt? Or did you <laughs> that <in the> slide? <laughs> uh, 
I don't, I don't, I, uh, yeah, that's kind of like that too. Not as much. I don't know. It's, 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 it's not, I can't say that's all the time, but there's sometimes it just hits me in a way. And I, I guess maybe for here, I was a little surprised because I was like, oh, damn, KRS1. Like, I, you know, I, I mean, wasn't, ex- this, even this. Well, he's, he's of... talking about Scott and the Rock, in fairness, yeah. not himself. <laughs> no, he, I know, but still, yeah. like, right. He's <laughs> not talking about himself. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's he's being the hype him. man for Scott <laughs> yeah. and the Rock. It's prodigious. It would be like if, if I told a bunch of explicit. Sex stories about Josh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. one of the reasons I really thought it was hilarious. That's was, true. Yeah. That's funny. And also, I find this song even you know that evolves too. I find this kind of pretty tasteful compared to some of the. Oh later, no, it is. No, <laughs> you're right. It just. I think part of it for me was just like I, because like being like not 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 seeing this coming from KRS One, like thinking of yeah. KRS One kind of all over here, and then like. Then he's doing gangstrap, and now he's talking about you yeah, know, yeah. bone and lots of chicks. You know, like I didn't, I, I was a little surprised by that. So that there's was, some that was transgressive stuff though too, because if you see a song called Super Ho, you think it's going to be about a woman, especially right, in right, that exactly. Era, right? The fact right. that he turns it on a man. Say, Scott Rock is a Super Ho. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, which so. is funny. Yeah. It's clever. I mean, it's definitely they thought through that. Um, it's not. Yeah, it's, that's. I, I think that's another thing about this album is that it's, it's, it's thought through and considered and mm-hmm. uh and just i don't know good fun listen yeah so, definite thumbs up for me for sure yeah, for mm-hmm. sure well there you okay. go so on to uh uh josh oh josh me. joshua you are up still next. here yeah yeah you are <laughs> so we're gonna Alive talk about well. metallica's still stand. <laughs> uh, talking about metallica's master of puppets the first uh, full bio for them and in the opening montage you heard leper messiah and now you're gonna hear welcome home sanitarium my friend and you will see the dream is my reality they keep me locked up in this the stats on this one so master of puppets by metallica comes in at number 13 in the 1980s big jump from bdp uh number two in 1986 number 108 of all time it's metallica's highest ranked album on best ever albums um it's also on rolling stones list coming in at number 97 so it's cracking the top 100 there and metallica is ranked as the number 41 highest overall artist on best ever albums Okay, so Metallica, they formed in 1981 in L.A. when Danish drummer Lars Ulrich, who was 18 at the time, placed an ad in the newspaper, The Recycler, which said, quote, drummer looking for other metal musicians to jam with Tigers of Pantang, Diamond Head, and Iron Maiden, unquote. Uh, guitarist James Hetfield, also 18 at the time, and Hugh Tanner answered the ad, and the band was officially formed on October 28th, 1981. I, I take that to mean that Hugh Tanner just happened to answer the ad as one of the people, but he wasn't in uh, the original 
iteration. He wasn't in of, any iteration. Yeah, he's a, he was just a guy. Um, was he name, like Hetfield's buddy or something, I, or was he just like a I random dude that just maybe they answered just, and didn't yeah, put in? Exactly. I think he just showed up. Um, the name Metallica came from Lars's friend Ron Quintana or Quintana when he was brainstorming ideas for a metal fanzine that he was making. He considered uh, the name Metallica or Metal Mania. And Lars said, I'm going to take Metallica as a name for my band, so don't use it for the magazine. Um, Dave Mustaine then joined the band soon after, um, after responding to another ad looking for a lead guitarist. So uh, following a long line of bands that placed ads in papers and then people answering, which doesn't happen anymore. Um, they recorded their first original song, Hit the Lights, in early of 1982 for a uh, compilation album called Metal Massacre One from the um, Metal Blade Records label that uh that they knew the band played its first live performance march 14th 1982 at radio city in anaheim with a new bassist ron mcgovney and then their second gig actually came opening for the band saxon at uh one stop on their 1982 u.s tour saxon was a british band uh, metal band the term thrash metal was not around yet. It was not coined until February 1984 by Kerrang! journalist Malcolm Dome. And before that, Hetfield called... I wonder if it came off the dome. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Before that, uh, James Hetfield had called Metallica power metal. So he was using that at the time. In late 1982, Ulrich and Hetfield saw a show at the Whiskey A Go-Go, where bassist Cliff Burton was performing, and they were, quote, blown away by him and his playing, and they recruited him to join Metallica. But uh, he initially declined, but then agreed to join the band on the condition that they moved to El Cerrito, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. And that's kind of where they've stayed ever since Metallica's based out of San Francisco. Um, so I believe they... that's uh, pronounced... El Cerrito, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they kicked out Ron McGovney, um, citing that he, quote, didn't contribute anything. He just followed. <laughs> so <laughs> they, uh, uh, in Cliff Burton out, Ron McGovney, short-lived. Uh, Metallica wanted to record their de- debut album with the uh, aforementioned Metal Blade Records from that compilation that they were a part of, but uh, they could not cover the cost of the um recording the record label so uh, concert promoter jonathan johnny z zazula signed them to his megaforce record label after uh they shopped around um to labels in new york city but none of them showed interest so he stepped in and, and signed them to his label in may of 1983 metallica traveled to rochester new york to record their debut album metal up your ass uh, later changed to kill them all, and I'll tell you about that in a bit. Uh, this is the. Oh, they should have kept it the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is the. At this time, members of the band decided to um, kick Dave Mustaine out of the band, citing uh, drug and alcohol abuse and violent behavior, um, just before they recorded the album on uh, April 11, 1983, um, and then Exodus guitarist Kirk Hammett then joined the band and replaced them the same he replaced Mustaine the same afternoon so I guess he was in Rochester somewhere or in New York think, of, think about how they kick him out for drugs or being difficult both 
I okay. think. Think about yeah. how many drugs you had to do because weren't they called alcoholica? Wasn't that yes. Metallica's like nickname? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. The, the uh, media nicknamed them that. Um, Due to their drinking so yeah it must have been really bad if he yeah. was doing that um, or he had to be like a super dick because like they just <laughs> both, used this I excuse guess. yeah um metallica's first live performance with hammett was on april 16th 1983 so shortly after he joined um, at a nightclub in dover new jersey called the Showplace with anthrax as the opening band um mustaine went on to form megadeth as you guys know and there was bad blood between him and the band for quite a long time afterwards, I would say. Um, or a grudge, I should say. Um, Kill Em All was released on July 25th, 1983. It was renamed um, f- to that after the record label and distributors thought it wouldn't sell well under the other name. Probably rightfully so, but who knows. Um, the album did not sell well Um you know, relatively speaking, um, but grew their fan base in the underground metal scene that was around at the time, and it's considered the first thrash metal album released in the U.S. Interesting. It's always funny to think of metal as being like an underground scene uh, because it's so kind of well known and prominent uh, nowadays. But their second album, which we've also talked about, "Ride the Lightning," was recorded in Copenhagen, Denmark, and released August 1984. It reached number 100 on the Billboard 200 uh, with virtually no airplay and received positive response from the critics as well. They were signed to Elektra Records in late 84 after the A&R director Michael Aligo and Cliff Bernstein of Q Prime Management saw one of their concerts. They then went on their first European tour, and Metallica played its largest show up to that point at the Monsters of Rock Festival in Donington Park, England on August 17, 1985, with Bon Jovi and Rat playing to 70,000 people. So quite a step up. Um, Which brings us to their third album, this album, Master of Puppets. It is recorded between september and december of 1985 at sweet silence studios in denmark and the album was released on march 3rd 1986 metallica was motivated to make an album that would impress critics and fans alike hetfield and ulrich were the main songwriters on this album they described the songwriting process as starting with quote guitar riffs assembled and reassembled until they started to sound like a song quote unquote and then they they would think of a song title and would write the lyrics afterwards Uh, they decided to record in denmark after not being satisfied with the acoustics of the american studios that they were considering at the time ulrich was actually in talks with getty lee of rush to produce the album but the collaboration never materialized due to scheduling and the album was produced by fleming rasmussen an all-time producer name if i've ever heard one all of the songs except two of them were already completed before they arrived in denmark to record but recording took longer because they had developed a sense of perfectionism and had high ambitions for this album the cover was designed by metallica and peter mensch and painted by don broddingham it depicts a cemetery field of white crosses tethered to strings manipulated by a pair of hands in a blood red sky or it says it summarizes the content and themes of the album 
uh, as I'm sure you've picked up on, hopefully. Um, the album was critically acclaimed on release and had a 72-week run on the Billboard 200, debuting at 128 and peaking at 29, and earned the band its first gold record. More than 500,000 copies were sold in its first year, even with no air, virtually no radio airplay and no music videos. So word of mouth definitely uh, spread that song. Uh, the Damage Inc. tour began in March of 1986 after the release of the album, and they spent March to August touring as the opening act for Ozzy Osbourne in the U.S., and this was their first tour to play large arenas. Uh, Metallica was noted by the media for their excessive drinking, and they were nicknamed Alcoholica, and the European leg of the tour began in September of '86 with Anthrax as their supporting band. And uh, unfortunately, the morning after their performance on September 26th in Stockholm, the band's bus um, rolled off the road and bassist Cliff Burton was pinned under the bus and died. Or I also saw reports of him being ejected from the bus when it rolled over. Um, I don't know which one's true. The driver claimed he hit a patch of black ice, but others believed he was either drunk or fell asleep at the wheel. Um, the driver was charged with manslaughter but never convicted. And the band returned to San Francisco after that and hired bassist Jason Newstead after more than 40 people auditioned. And they ended up finishing that tour in February of 1987. Now, we will call cover Metallica later uh, in the 90s. And uh, we will be talking about another one of their albums uh, coming up here as well. Uh, and Justice for All from 88. So I'm not doing any more bio. I will finish up the bio when we get to the 90s. But uh, Master of Puppets. And Matt, I think you go first. And what did you think of this album? Yeah, I, I didn't... That's another one. I didn't, my early Metallica knowledge is not very... <laughs> <laughs> extensive uh mm -hmm. i i knew master of puppets and that might have been that's probably the only recognizable song on here god they play fast it's unbelievable and i know that it's not that hasn't changed really since their first couple albums but i yeah. just i'm just amazed at um at the speed in which they are able to play and i and I've, I've seen them live before and it's like when you see somebody play like this it's not like they're just doing it for like one three four minute long song like you know to do it for an extended concert and some of these songs a lot of these songs are long right and i know it's they yeah. have a little bit of a proggy nature to them which I, I i definitely like i like kind of like the different movements that you mm -hmm. have i like how they bring it up and down but man when they're playing fast it's just like i don't know i don't know how they're able to do it and, and to do it and to say st to uh stay so tight as a band is just a remarkable talent that that these guys were able to do um so i mean that's easily the thing that sticks out the most is just how how fast and how tight, you know, this, this really is. Um, there's great riffs all over the place here. Uh, I, I really, I think my, honestly, I think my favorite song on here might be the instrumental. That song is awesome. That Orion, it's the, the, the mm -hmm. riffs that they have on there. It's, it's really melodic. The guitar kind of, it's not a, it's, it's like the notes that Kirk Hammett's is playing over the riff. It's just, it's so melodic. It's so cool. They have really great guitar tones that are happening there. This like on a higher pitch kind of 
they do a little bit of an echoey effect that's happening. It's it's a really crisp, clear production sound. Um, very, very, uh, you know, kind of pleasing to hear. Um, I like how they opened up battery with like the like the Spanish guitar. Actually, when I, I <laughs> yeah. play, I was playing this earlier tonight. I didn't play this album a whole lot, like in my just out loud in my kitchen living room as I do sometimes with other albums. When I was playing <laughs> no, this here tonight, <laughs> and uh, it, yeah, well, Sherry's okay with this. It's just it's 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 a bit much. I think just like maybe one song is okay yeah. and mix it up with other stuff. Like an entire album, I think was hard. But when I started playing this, she didn't know what it was, and when they, she she lit up because oh, the Spanish guitar because she loves the Spanish guitar. She's like, who is this? And I'm like, uh, Julio Iglesias. And she's like, oh, really? The Feliz Navidad guy? And I was like, yeah. And I just like let it. And then all of a sudden, it comes in. She's like, oh, it's Metallica. So I just love how they 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 kind of do the intro. Uh, you know they they kind of take you a little bit of a like a calming feel and then the real stuff comes you know so they it's just it's crazy hetfield's voice is great it's like i don't know that's another thing i don't know how guys can sing like this this raspy like it's he's not screaming but the the singing style is so it's got to do so much damage the, the the training and the preparation that he has to do for his vocals to be able to to sound like this and to keep going for hours on end at a concert is, or for a recording is, is also super impressive as well. So, um, you know, I, it, it does kind of, it does kind of blend together in certain parts for me. Like at times I was kind of, I was like having it, having a difficult time differentiating one kind of thing from the next. Um, and, and I'm also kind of not sure, do I like this better than ride the lightning? I, mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I do. I think I probably like both of them better than kill them all. But it's not like to me and maybe other Metallica fans and people that are much more into the genre can can decidedly say, oh, this is much better than Kill 'Em All. I definitely think these are more mature albums like that. There's more the the progressive uh, nature of it, the way that they kind of flow, different movements and things like that. It's they're expanding their their sound in some ways, but it's also kind of it's very much rooted in that thrash metal kind of thing. That's the overall that's the main, you know, 85 to 90 percent of what you're hearing is 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 kind of in that lane. And to me who doesn't have as refined a palette of this it kind of it does kind of blend together it's it's all still good um but it is it's an experience to listen to from front to back it's 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 you don't just put this on any time or if you and if you do you're not gonna there's 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 times where you're gonna feel this more than others i think um mm. and uh and that's a good thing when you want to feel this way it's not such a good thing if you kind of want to you know, if you want a little bit of a different thing. But having said that, there are times where they do bring it down and they do kind of do different things, um, which is nice. It's just the majority of this is that thrash metal, the speed, which is, like I said, really impressive. So, uh, yeah, this is badass, bottom line, and uh, and definitely thumbs up for me. So, yep. Yeah, um, I, if you ask me to rank the three we've done so far, I think I'd put Ride the Lightning ahead of Master of Puppets a little bit in terms of my personal pecking order, um, with Kill 'Em All being third. Um, mm -hmm. But um, that's not to say, though, that there's not <laughs> lots of good on this. And, I mean, obviously the self-titled is one of the inner circle Metallica songs, Master of Puppets. Um, it's an eight-minute-plus epic. Um, I love it, but I, I think the song that I always come to on this, I, I'm glad you mentioned Orion, Matt, because I actually really have always loved Orion as well as a song, as an instrumental, and I like when Metallica throws in an instrumental. But um, uh, Welcome Home Sanitarium is mm -hmm. like a classic uh, uh, Metallica, and that it's got a little bit of ballad qualities at some points, but not a lot. So it's it's veering all over. Um, uh, battery is 
as you mentioned, it's just fast. It's a fast, heavy song. It's a great opener. It's a really good, the yeah. way they introduce that's a great opening and, track. And Damage Inc. is also on the I way think, out. It basically shoves like you out the, the door. Fastest. Yeah. <laughs> the album like, seems to pick up speed as it goes on. It's like it thrusts you into the house at the beginning, right? With yeah. uh, Battery. And then eventually when it's done, it kicks you out the back door with Damage Inc. I feel it's like how this album goes. And in between, there's a lot of different stuff. I think Disposable Heroes is really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's right in the middle. So it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at this point, Metallica's playing just about everything fast, which is why they're mm-hmm. ballads, you know, when they're doing them here, or, or things that are resembling ballads or slower parts yep. um, stand out. And I think that's what kind of goes in. And they'll give you interludes where you're like, ooh, wow, like you said, it's, you know, the Spanish guitar or. They slow it down and play this very pretty melodic thing, but you you just know at this stage of Metallica's career, it, it it's just waiting for the hammer to drop again. Yeah. That's why they were so fascinating to listen to when they did uh, the S and M concert, right, with the orchestra. Oh because yeah, because mm-hmm. they actually worked remarkably well with mm-hmm. the format of an orchestra with like a furious conductor. You know, like Metallica kind of it was genius for whoever put two and two together, right? That they were such a good mix because yeah, i think they've done that a few times too like yeah they've them. done it on multiple occasions yeah. but yeah i i just always thought it was kind of a genius thing because they do sort of have these codas and uh, rises and falls and crashes right along the way and, mm. and bilges so i love that I, i've mentioned it before and i'm going to mention it again like i feel like james hetfield was walking an entire generation of males through attempting to like understand things like depression and grief and stuff like that. Like I'm always amazed when we do the multiple listens of the Metallica albums, right? Cause Metallica for years was to me about, you know, the energy, right? Mm-hmm. But now as I explore and, and, you know, I was aware of songs like fade to black and one and stuff that were pretty profound lyrically, but I think more and more, I realized just how much like he really was, I don't think it, he set out to do it, but the, the lyrics are just very personal um, and very relatable. I think especially for like men who it just doesn't come easy to, right? And like I can't stress enough how much I feel that like that is such an unusual lane to be in, right? Like speaker of emotions for those that don't do emotions easy, right? And like that's kind of I think why you, there's so many stories of vets, for example, talking about they'd play Metallica when they were overseas and lonely or lost hope and stuff, or people, you know, when life threw them curveballs or fight, you know, fighting through their own depression and stuff. That I think for some people, the idea of you're going to feel better when you play Metallica is a foreign concept to them, but for those that it does, it's the opposite, right? And that makes total sense. And I do think that might be a line of demarcation to metal in general, that someone who may not be amenable to it might hear this and say, oh, that sounds harsh or uninviting. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, especially when you hear this type of metal, it like it it really can set you free in some ways um, and, and be uplifting, even if it's dark at the same time. And I think that's really the virtuosoness of Metallica is really understated and and their place as like one of the most important american bands i think is also wildly underrated in terms of where they stand on that i i i will go 
till my dying day and say there is no logical argument that can be made that Metallica is not one of the five most important American bands of all time. It's just, it, there isn't. Like, there's, there's no argument, in my opinion. <clears throat> I'd love to hear somebody say it, but the argument would start with, I don't like metal, <laughs> right? But, like, on every other element, yeah. right? Like, influence, sales, um, moving American music a certain way in genre, like, the ability to have multiple careers, right? And reinvention, length of career, like, everything is checked mm-hmm. by Metallica. Uh, and... I don't think anybody ever talks about them as a top five band, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and like there's a whole generation of music fans. I think the idea behind that would give them like indigestion, but like, it just cracks me up because it's like, it's once you get past personal taste, it's like undeniably a no brainer. It's like, it's, it's without a doubt. And, and, and I don't think unless you think about that for a while, you, you default there right um because you think oh there's people that love metallica right and then there's people that don't connect with them but it it's um then you start to realize like i i think of like my mom can listen to metallica right like maybe not all metallica but enough that my mom will say oh i enjoy metallica right and Mm -hmm. my mom is in her late 60s right and certainly not there but it's funny because until you know maybe the mid 90s when there's all the discussion about where Metallica is at, maybe Black Album, depending on it, but like they're still making songs that can cross over even at this stage when they are definitively in this space. And that's a gift, you know? And like, it's, it's not easy to transcend a niche genre and suddenly make it not niche anymore. And probably no one has had more influence on metal becoming palatable for a mainstream audience than metallica right i mean who oh definitely yeah i mean they're it they've basically brought it to the masses i would say Uh, yeah so this is another in another in a series of 80s metallica albums that are going to be easy thumbs up for me um like i said i might like ride the lightning a little bit more we're gonna do you know injustice for all coming up and some other stuff along the way so we'll be able to probably all of us will have our definitive ranking of 80s metallica but yeah i mean this is this is a clear thumbs up Uh, and they also i would say like they they benefited too from what they got more airplay you know with mtv in particular you know i don't remember seeing a ton of um judas priest out uh videos uh on it or or um iron maiden you know i never knew what iron maiden looked like until like 15 years ago you know what i mean so like metallica was also like they were more marketable, I think, um, than some of the But I don't know if anybody could have been Metallica. Like, if you gave them Metallica's variables, I don't... As much as I love Iron Maiden and mm-hmm. Black Sabbath, like, I don't think anybody could be Metallica except for Metallica. I, yeah. I don't think you can cast that role and they were, like, uniquely, like, circumstance, right? I, I think, like, Metallica's always going to be Metallica. And I don't think you can say, oh, if you put insert band A in Metallica's no. trajectory that, that anyone becomes No, I'm just Metallica saying they were able to cross band. that boundary. They were able right. to kind of, they right. were able to take something that yeah. was very niche and, and make its way into the mainstream. Maybe not, like, like, overwhelmingly so, but definitely enough to, like, bring it to, like, some, you know, 
some young, dumb kid that from upstate New York like me who wouldn't have been able exposed to them, you know, before because I got a lot, took a lot of my takes from MTV. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, and they're really not having videos at this point. The first, not at this video point, I can no. remember is yeah. one, and that's uh, right, later. one, yeah, and they're not getting played on the radio. So, I mean, they're selling two million albums largely on word of mouth, you know, at this yeah. point, which mm-hmm. is kind of remarkable when you think about that. No so, internet, yeah. you know, yeah, no, I mean, no, yeah. no, way, yeah, no way to. They just had to play shows and yeah, do like well, legit no, word of mouth. You know? No radio, no MTV, no internet, no yeah. They're just yeah. It's it's like somebody's brother. It's like what I always tell my story, right? Like somebody's brother had them yeah. and said this band kicks ass, and somebody listens and goes this band kicks ass, yeah. and then it just keeps you know yeah. like sells, well, not just right? and not just their sound, but when you have like the majority of your songs are over six minutes long you know that when, when you gotta have three and a half at most for a lot of singles no but the know. table had been set for that because there'd been a lot of metal acts that went long you know whether it be sabbath or you know Dead zeppelin or you know iron maiden right so like there were some folks that set the table for that but yeah like you said it's but those it's the, not... the eight minute songs weren't making their way weren't they weren't playing well, maybe Stairway might have broken that. That might have been a little different. But most of the most radios sure. are not, or they're trimming it down. They're cutting back yeah. like a right. couple minutes on stuff too. So, I think that anyway. kind of gets to the prog nature of of their album and and their structure is like you said, Matt. And they kind of each have their own little like crests and troughs and mm-hmm. kind of journey within each song and they they go really hard but then they like give you a chance to catch your breath and then they like go right back into it and after a little like interlude or something and i think that makes the songs kind of easier to 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 comprehend and kind of go along for as being as long as they are it, it makes them more palatable in some way and it makes and, it more interesting too i think yeah yeah, and I, I think it just gets to the kind of the musical uh, virtuosity, as John said, uh, of them. I think they are influenced by not just metal, but like all types of music and and are interested in constructing things a certain way. Um, I'm a big fan of this album, too. Um, I, I really liked it. I um, It's very atmospheric. It's um, I, I picked up on all or I read a lot of the lyrics this time around too. Um, there's a lot of dark themes, obviously uh, thoughts of being controlled and kind of being pawns and things with with um, a, an example, well, obviously being like master of puppets um, being first and center front and center. But, um, you know, they have an anti-war song like Disposable Heroes, which is <laughs> pretty dark about soldiers just being used for cannon fodder, essentially, and the generals not caring um, about about the low low people um leper messiah which is uh one of my favorites about kind of uh televangelists and and religion um one of the song lyrics is send me money send me green heaven you will meet make a contribution and you'll get a better seat um so i think it's just very um not sarcastic but um uh, dark dark uh humor nihilistic Um, yes (laughs) and um telling it like it is um uh and they they still go to that well of kind of uh mystical uh horror that uh in a song like that thing that shall not be is an hp lovecraft uh cthulhu reference um you know 
he watches lurking beneath the sea in madness you dwell and then there's like a crazy guitar solo um so they're still doing that and then you know welcome home sanitarium about a person in a mental hospital so you know that's as dark as it gets um and, and master puppets is like being controlled by drugs right is that yes because i is. actually looked at the lyrics for that. i was like because I, I thought it was like some satanic thing like the devil's controlled but it, uh, i was like seems like it's drugs yeah i think it's about cocaine specifically or heroin There's always or a personal like narrative with it you know like yep. there may be a universal theme but it, it's couched in like an individual's journey right yes along with the themes josh mentioned right like the literary they, you get the feeling that a lot of the guys are well read too because mm-hmm. they they do drop a lot of liter like heavier literary illusions so yep mm-hmm. yeah and it's not like a kind of cliche lyrics or kind of um i don't know the lyrics there's content to the lyrics and i think that the lyrics themselves are well constructed um so uh and ultimately this album just goes so hard and i love it listening to it i listened to it at 9 a.m yesterday and um it was just <laughs> wakes you good, up. like wake up <laughs> like way to start your day um but uh also a great album to uh, work out to so um yeah big thumbs up for me i don't i i agree with you guys i'm not sure if this is like such a big step up from ride the lightning that i could tell you which one i like more i think it's kind of you know similar enough that i it was hard to differentiate but i i do like this album and i like that we are continuing the journey with them so thumbs up for me awesome and we'll be back with them soon enough Yep. Uh, I think we're doing Injustice for All, right? Is next. Yep. Yeah, it's a cold listen, but um, yeah, definitely in a few, a little bit. Sounds good. And that takes us to the end of our journey. Um, hopefully not to the sanitary. For yes. any of us this time. I think I think we got a ways to go. That's in four cold listens. So we got a little ways to go before oh, we get okay. them again. Well, that's as good a place as any, Matt. Maybe you can uh, bumper next week's show. Tell the folks sure. at home so, what we're listening to. So we have another, another um, <laughs> Quite regular... Quite a departure from this week. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. We have a, uh, another regular episode, and uh, we're going to start things off. John. Well, I don't know if this is the order or not, but John is going to be covering Bon Jovi. We mentioned them. that They came up in some conversation. Slippery when wet. Yeah, that's the, right. Slippery yep. when wet. Metallica played with them. The oh, that's right. Festival. Yes, yes that, that's a weird... I mean... <laughs> Anyway, uh, I'm going to be covering. Oh, we're going to go. We're going to do some Graceland yep. with Paul Simon. I will be covering that one, and then Josh covering another band we mentioned tonight, Run DMC, Raisin Hell. So, yep, um, full bio the albums for next week. Yeah. So we'll be. That's two revisits, right? And then a brand Nubian. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Did I right. was I assigned Bon Jovi because of the New Jersey connection? Is that how that ended up happening? I don't, or was it I think just you, I, th- I think I think it just happened. I mean, you definitely okay. had input, so I think you <laughs> agreed. I think I think levels. I think when you decide when you heard Did you I have input bon Jovi, or was it like, like one of those things where like I um I think like you guys had already covered albums and we stay married to stuff and it just I think it was that I think it was like just like process of elimination. You're like, oh crap! All right, I'll do Bon Jovi. Like you. I'm not going to say that. Uh, let's let's just say I don't know if I'm going to hate that album. I although okay. I have to say I don't know if I've ever listened to the album Slippery When Wet. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. I, like as a piece. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, like, like well, I, I, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be like one of those where I have listened to the album but because I've listened to every song individually, I've just mm. have to now piece it together as like 
you know, when, you know, like one of those video games where there's like eight keys you have to collect and then you put it together to make like one thing. I <laughs> yeah. think that's going to be what Slippery One well, Wet is for me. Well, this so. is going to be like Rio when we did Duran Duran because it's an album okay. that I definitely knew a lot as a kid and I haven't listened to in years. So yes. it'll be an interesting revisit for me. There we go. Well, with Little that teaser. teaser. Yeah, I was about to say, with that teaser right there, I think it's time to sign off. So for uh, Josh and Matt, this is John. Thanks so much for listening. Check us out, as I said before, on YouTube by searching Combing the Stacks Music Podcast for individual album reviews. Have a wonderful week. Combing the Stacks can be found on 13 different platforms. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CombingThe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks throwing us a follow.